so that you can uh, find out what is in it. If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? out of what's going on in the world today and come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet Radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 3675. So sit back, relax, and remember Southern Sense is common sense. first impulse. If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use to prepare for things that may happen. It's a earthquake, lizard, or even social unrest political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in and I use my Patriot supply for my food storage. Have an emergency food supply? It's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote and it's only 75 website prepare with southernsense.com or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290. 7290 or go to prepare com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show and it's called Southern Sense and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com 
and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Oh, all right. Welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense Listening Live on Vlog Talk Radio, SHR Media, The Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook. Oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the least mostest today, Andy, the radio chickadee, along with my current co-host and husband, current husband for now, <laughs> Yanni. <laughs> Come on, honest Yanni. <laughs> your current husband? <laughs> I'm having a little difficulty... All right, let's try that better. All right, I'm having a little problem. My mixer board's acting up a little bit today. A little going in and out here on the headphones. Anyway, we got ourselves a a great show lined up. Uh, Dr. Bruce Hartman, who was supposed to be with us on last Friday, there was a little bit of a communication error. Every time I tried to call him in, he looked like a spam on his phone, so he wouldn't pick up. So if I saw spam on my phone, I'm not going to pick up, but hopefully we got that straightened out and he'll call into us uh, at the start of the show. And then we have Dylan Howard, and this is going to be a very interesting interview. Um, He used to be with the National Enquirer, and he's got a new book out called COVID-19, The Greatest Cover-Up in History from Wuhan to the White House. Um, I don't know how well that interview is going to go, but we're going to try it anyway. Uh, but we also, if you watch Newsmax, they've had this commercial all over the place for a new movie coming out next month. It's going to be released called The Penitent Thief. And if anyone remembers the story in the Bible of Christ's crucifixion, two thieves were hung, one to the left and one to the right. The one to the left condemned him and cursed him. The one to the right asked for forgiveness. And it's about these two thieves and the crucifixion. Uh, It's out. It's by uh, Lucas Miles, who does a lot of religious uh, movies and podcasts and other shows he does. He's he's a rather prodigious producer. Uh, This also has starring in it Kevin Sarbo as um, Punch's pilot. So we're going to have him on talking about the movie, uh, his works are, that are out there. And then we can close out this week. Now, we were supposed to finish last week with um, Jonathan Butch- Butcher, uh, but we had our friend um, Megan Israel uh, from the Heritage Foundation. So Jonathan got called away. He was doing an interview at One American Network and couldn't be in two places at the same time, but he's making sure he's saving time for us this weekend. So that will close out our show. Um, but uh, we've got a lot to talk about, a lot to do, uh, and we still got what's going on with the election and on and on and on. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, I want to thank everyone that is here listening over and in the chat room over at uh, Blog Talk Radio, and we have it open up also on Facebook Live Video. And we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And sometimes the dedication goes out to more than one fallen hero. And today's is going to be exceptional because this is going to be our last live broadcast for the year. And I want to close out the year with a very, very special uh, dedication. And, uh, Doug, you're asking me about New Year's resolutions. We'll talk about that a little bit later on in the show, (laughs) New Year's resolutions. Uh, I'm sure we're going to have a blast with that. But today's dedication is going out to not one, 
or two or five heroes. It is going out to 165 law enforcement officers who this year lost their life in the line of duty due to the infection of the COVID-19 virus. And there's no better way than to do this dedication to the brave men and women who served on the front line in, in service as law enforcement by reading their date, their uh, place of service, and their name. And it starts off after Officer Jose Santana of the United States Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, December 2nd, 2020. Deputy uh, Chief Deputy Constable M. Wayne Rhodes, Denton County Constable's Office, Texas, December 1st, 2020. Deputy Sheriff John J. Sonny Kahar, Cambridge County Sheriff's Office, Pennsylvania, November 8th, 2020. Captain Philip Edward Street, County Sheriff's Office, Georgia, November 27th, 2020. Senior Police Officer Ernest Leal Jr., Houston Police Department, Texas, November 27th, 2020. Correction Officer Glenn F. Martinez, Guam Department of Corrections, Guam, Monday, November 23rd, 2020. Detention Officer Dwight Willis, Green County Sheriff's Office, Missouri, Sunday, November 22nd. Correction Officer Richard Allen Wright, Missouri Department of Corrections, Thursday, November 19th. Air Interdiction Agent Christopher Doyle Carney, United States Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, Monday, November 16. Lieutenant Marzell Jerome Brooks, Brookhaven Police Department, Mississippi, Sunday, November 15th. Agent Juan R. Ramirez Padilla, Puerto Rico Police Department, Friday, November 13th. Officer Domingo Yasso III, United States Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, November 5th. Sergeant William Darnell, DeWitt Police, uh, DeWitt Township Police Department, Missouri, Wednesday, November 4th. First Lieutenant Robert Rodriguez Hernandez, Puerto Rico Police Department, Wednesday, November 4th. Deputy Sheriff Johnny R. Tunches, Harris County Sheriff's Office, Texas, Tuesday, November 3rd. Lieutenant Lloyd Ray Ham, Richmond Parish Sheriff's Office, Louisiana, Monday, November 2nd, 2020. Corporal Avery Hillman, Crisp County Sheriff's Office, Georgia, Saturday, October 31st, 2020. Police Officer Jared Lindsay, Tulsa Tech Police Department, Oklahoma, Wednesday, October 28th. Deputy Sheriff Raul Gomez, Wharton County Sheriff's Office, Texas, Monday, October 26th. Police Officer Alex Areno, Everman Police Department, Texas, Thursday, October 22nd. 
Major Ricky A. Groves, Kennett Police Department, Missouri, Friday, October 16th. Sheriff Pete Smith, Sumter County Sheriff's Office, Georgia, Wednesday, October 14th. Sheriff Dennis R. Oliver, Highland Village Department, Texas, October 2nd. Correctional Officer Donald E. Parker, Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Thursday, October 1st. Captain Jeff Sewell, Oklahoma Highway, Saturday, September 26th. Customs Officer Renee Tumuda, Guam Customs and Quarantine Agency, Friday, September 25th. Senior Federal Air Marshal Kenneth R. Measel, United States Department of Homeland Security, Thursday, September 24th. Master Jail Officer Robert Charles Sunakayan, Hampton Roads Regional Jail, Virginia, Thursday, September 24th. Randy M. Vallett, Richmond Parish Sheriff's Office, Louisiana, Wednesday, September 23rd. Deputy Sheriff Christopher Smith, McLean County Sheriff's Office, Texas, Monday, September 21. Sergeant Charles Edward Norton, Richmond County Sheriff's Office, Georgia, Sunday, September 20th. Officer Carlo J. Cryayab, United States Department of Homeland Security, Wednesday, September 16th. Sergeant Eric John Tweezale, Clay County Sheriff's Office, Florida, Wednesday, September 16th. Deputy Sheriff Angela Chevers, Palm Beach County, Florida, Saturday, September 12th. Corrections Officer Susan Ann Roberts, Williamson County Sheriff, Texas, Saturday, September 12th. Detective Jose Mora, Fresno County, California, Monday, September 7th. Corporal Charles E. Holt, Tarrant County Sheriff's Office, Texas. Sergeant Myra Rodriguez Brigado, Puerto Rico Police Department, Monday, August 31st. Deputy Sheriff Maurice Ford, Palm County, Florida, Thursday, August 27th. Corrections Officer V. James Weston, Jr., Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Wednesday, August 26th. Police Officer Jorge Cabrera, Mission Police, Texas, Monday, August 24th. Raul Salazar, Jr., New County, Texas, Sunday, August 23rd. Detective Irving Green Calendar III, Newark, New Jersey, Saturday, August 22nd. Deputy Sheriff Richard Treadwell, Dane County, Wisconsin, Saturday, August 22nd. Officer Lucas Susado, United States Department of Homeland Security, Friday, August 21. Sergeant Virgil Thomas, Richmond, California, Thursday, August 20th. Corporal Michael Ambrosino, Horry County, South Carolina, Wednesday, August 19th. Detention Deputy Charles Pugh II, Santa Rosa, Florida, Tuesday, August 18th. Corrections Officer V. Herbert Garcia, Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Tuesday, August 18th. Lieutenant Maybell W. Hendricks, Ridgeville Police Department, South Carolina, Monday, August 12th. Lieutenant Aldemar Rengifel, Broward County, Florida, Sunday, August 16th. Special Deputy Marshal Anthony Charles McGrew, United States Department of Justice, Saturday, August 15th. 
Corrections Officer V. Elizabeth Jones, Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Saturday, August 15th. Deputy Sheriff Stephen Bradley, Crazy Wolf Dutton, Harris County, Georgia, Friday, August 14th. Corrections Officer the 4th, LaBooth Boyer, Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Wednesday, August 12th. Correctional Officer Dudley J. Champ, Jefferson County, Texas, Monday, August 10th. Sergeant Gilbert Policino, California Department of Corrections, Sunday, August 9th. Deputy Sheriff Philip Caravotis, Effingham County, Georgia, Thursday, August 6th. Lieutenant Chris Cunningham, Jacksonville Sheriff's Office, Florida, Wednesday, August 5th. Deputy Patrol Agent Marco, Marco A. Gonzalez, United States Department of Homeland Security, Wednesday, August 5th. Probation Officer Leslie Dale Allen of Georgia, Tuesday, August 4th. Correction Officer Daniel Glenn Oaks, Yamika County, Washington, Saturday, August 1st. Sergeant Hernell Guyton, University of Alabama, Friday, August 31st. Captain Kevin Trahan, Church Point, Louisiana, July 31st, Friday. Deputy Sheriff Michael Stevens, Galveston, Texas, Friday, July 31st. Correction Officer Yero Antonio Bravo, Miami-Dade, Florida, Thursday, July 30th. Lieutenant Eric L. Lloyd, Las Vegas, Nevada, Wednesday, July 29th. Correction Officer V. Eric Johnson, Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Monday, July 27th. Sergeant Corey Pendergrass, Lauderhill Police Department, Florida, Sunday, July 26th. Senior Officer Sharon Williams, New Orleans, Louisiana, July 26th. Correction Officer the 4th, Ruben Martinez, Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Sunday, July 26th. Border Agent Augustin Aguilar, Jr., United States Department of Homeland Security, Saturday, July 25th. Investigator Mark Brown, Harris County, Texas, Saturday, July 25th. Deputy Sheriff Oscar W. Rocha, Alameda County, California, Thursday, July 23rd. Lieutenant Brian McNair, Hale County, Georgia, Monday, July 20th. Correction Officer the 4th, Jackson Pongay, Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Sunday, July 19th. Master Sergeant Henry Turner, Louisiana Department of Corrections, Saturday, July 18th. Master Detention Deputy Richard Barry, Lake County, Florida, Thursday, July 16th. Captain Stephen M. Goodett, Jr., Pearl River, Louisiana, Thursday, July 16th. Correction Officer the 5th, Jerry Esperanza, Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Wednesday, July 15th, Schumer, a uh, summer, I'm sorry, Patton State Hospital, California, Tuesday, July 14th. Master Police Officer Robert J. Hall, Columbia, South Carolina, Tuesday, July 14th. Director N. Kyle Coleman, Bexar County, Texas, Tuesday, July 14th. Officer Raul D. Lufuente, United States Department of Homeland Security, Monday, July 13th. Correction Officer Jose Alfredo de Ramos, Joe Cates, California Department of Corrections, Saturday, July 11th. Border Patrol Agent Enrique J. 
Rostisas Jr., United States Department of Homeland Security, Saturday, July 11th. Lieutenant Bobby Almeida, Corpus Christi, Texas, Friday, July 10th. Officer Alfonso H. Marietta, United States Department of Homeland Security, Thursday, July 9th. Captain Glenn Allen Green, Pike County, Missouri, Sunday, July 6th. Corrections Officer Kenneth Herbane, Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Saturday, July 4th. Sergeant Kelvin Dwayne Mixon, Edwards Police Department, Mississippi, Thursday, July 2nd. Parole Officer the 4th, Joseph William Lang, Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Wednesday, July 1st. Correction Officer Jose Marquise, Cook County, Illinois, Sunday, July 28th. Juvenile Corrections Officer Sean Rihanna Wilson, Texas Juvenile Justice Department, Sunday, June 28th. Sergeant Dale Moulter, Travis County, Texas, Saturday, June 27th. Assistant Chief Gail Green Gilman, Phoenix City Police, Alabama, Wednesday, June 24th. Master Detention Deputy Lynn Jones, Lake County, Florida, Wednesday, June 24th. Deputy Sheriff Stephen Allen Minor, Rockdale County, Georgia, Wednesday, June 24th. Police Officer Michael Lee, Navajo Division on Tribal Lands, Friday, June 19th, Arizona. Deputy Sheriff Juan Menkea, Harris County, Texas, Saturday, June 13th. Police Officer Michael Alexander Connors, Newark, New Jersey, Thursday, April 30th. Detective Sergeant Randall C. French, Troy, New York, Thursday, April 30th. Detention Deputy Timothy D. Lufuente, Bexar County, Texas, Thursday, April 30th. Correction Officer V. the Fifth, James D. Coleman, Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Tuesday, April 28th. Corrections Officer Coy D. Kaufman, Jr., Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Sunday, April 26th. Senior Detention Officer Alexander Reginald Petaway, Durham County, North Carolina, Saturday, April 25th. Police Officer Joseph Capello, Melrose Park, Illinois, Friday, April 24th. Patrolman Gary Walker, Bloomingdale, New Jersey, Friday, April 24th. Agent Miguel Martinez-Ortiz, Puerto Rico, Friday, April 24th. Corporal Lawrence Onley, United States Department of Defense, Tuesday, April 24th. Correction Officer Jeremy Smith, Shelby County Office, Tennessee, Tuesday, April 21st. Correction Officer the 5th, Jonathan Keith Goodman, Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Tuesday, April 21, Warden Wilmot Sandlin Sandy McCain, Louisiana Department of Corrections, Monday, April 20th, Correction Officer Sheila Rivera, Cook County, Illinois, Sunday, April 19th, Police Officer Ronald Newman, Chicago, Illinois, Friday, April 17th, Detective Alex Ruperto, Union City, New Jersey, Thursday, April 16th, Sergeant Joseph Spinoza, Sands Point, New York, Wednesday, April 15th. Police Officer Jose Fontanez, Boston, Massachusetts, Tuesday, April 14th. Sergeant 
Alteric Shondal Patterson, Bedmets, Bedminster, New Jersey. Sunday, April 12th, Police Officer Francisco S. Scorpio, Patterson, New Jersey. Sunday, April 12th, Intermittent Police Chief Mark J. Romitis, Ambridge, Pennsylvania. Sunday, April 12th, Sergeant Clifford W. Martin, Sr., Chicago, Illinois. Friday, April 12th, Police Officer Kurt James Engett, Bainbridge Island, Washington. Friday, April 12th, Correction Officer the 4th, Kelvin D. Welker, Texas Department of Criminal Justice. Monday, April 6th, Special Deputy Marshal Brian Leith McGee, United States Department of Justice. Monday, April 6th, Captain James Walker, Philadelphia, PA. Sunday, April 5th, Sergeant Jose Diaz Aya, Palm Beach County, Florida. Saturday, April 4th, Deputy Sheriff Shannon Bennett, Broward County, Florida, Friday, April 3rd. Corporal Dean Servard, Wayne County, Mississippi, Friday, April 3rd. Deputy Sheriff Terrell Young, Riverside, California, Thursday, April 2nd. Police Officer Marco DeFranco, Chicago, Illinois, Thursday, April 2nd. Deputy Sheriff Jeff Hopkins, El Paso, Colorado, Wednesday, April 1st. Correction Officer Kenneth J. Moore, District of Columbia, Wednesday, April 1st. Detective Mary Lou Armour, Santa Rosa, California, Tuesday, March 31st. Deputy Sheriff Bud Fograhith, Montgomery, North Carolina, Tuesday, March 31st. Deputy Constable Levi Arnold, First City Court of New Orleans, Louisiana, Friday, March 30th. And Raymond Andrew Bozeman, New Orleans, Louisiana, Sunday, March 29th. Commander Donafrey Collins, Wayne County, Mississippi, Wednesday, March 25th. Captain Jonathan Parnell, Detroit, Michigan, Tuesday, March 24th. Police Officer Michael Alexander Condors, Newark, New Jersey, Thursday, April 30th. Detective Sergeant Randall C. French, Troy, New York, Thursday, April 30th. Detention Deputy Thomas D. LaFuente, Bexar County, Texas, Thursday, April 30th. Correction Officer the 5th, James D. Coleman. Date is missing. Agent Miguel Martinez Ortiz, Puerto Rico, Friday, April 24th. Corporal Lawrence Onley, United States Department of France, Tuesday, April 21st. Correction Deputy Jeremy Smith, Shelby, Tennessee, Tuesday, April 21st. Correction Officer the 4th, Jonathan Keith Goodman, Texas, Department of Corrections, Tuesday, April 21st. Warden Wilmot Sandy McCain. Well, some of these are being repeated. I apologize. And finally, Captain Jonathan Parnell, Detroit Police Department, Tuesday, March 24th. 165 law enforcement officers in the line of duty who contracted COVID and passed away from doing their job. We welcome you again to another episode here of Southern Sense. And as we wait for our guest 
to call in. We dedicate the show to all these brave men and women who gave their name in the line of duty, serving and protecting. To the brave men and women in our law enforcement, to our firefighters, to our first responders, as well as those that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. We dedicate to each and every one of them this song by Todd Allen Harrington. My name is America. May God bless each and every one.
corner all time. You can see him arrive. Stood six foot three, weighed two thirty five, kind of broad at the shoulder and fast with the lip. And everybody knew he didn't give no shit to Big Dog. Democrat L walked a giant of a man that the Patriots knew well, grabbed a sagging economy and let out with the throne, and like the mighty oak tree, just stood there alone, big dog. I'm talking about our man Donald Trump, he's the president now, and all you chumps can just settle down and stay in your safe space. We're about to make America a better place for big dogs. On Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitches, Streakers, YouTube, iHeartRadio, all the heck with it. I forget half a dozen places that we've been in or that we are in. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the least mostest today, the Rio Chickadee, Annie, along with my co-host, my husband, Yanni. And we have our next victim up. We missed him last week, so we, we're going to put him in, in the corner with the little... You know, in the little hat on and everything. But we'll, we'll let him out now today. <laughs> Welcome in onto the show, Dr. Bruce Hartman. Good afternoon, Dr. Hartman. i got to pull your leg. Yeah, we've known each other too long. I can't let it go. <laughs> no, it's uh, well-deserved. Yeah, how are you today, Annie? Oh, you don't want to know. <laughs> if you okay. want an 80-year-old Italian mother, I'll ship her over to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. 
Uh, a good good answer. You've got a, a new book out, and it's called Spend a Year with Jesus, an inspirational journey of finding Jesus and faith. And it, it is a marvelous book, and it's an easy reader uh, that someone that, you know, that doesn't really know anything much about Christianity can start to pick up and start to learn what is this all about? Who is this Jesus guy? Yeah, so that's uh, that's what we're trying to answer with this book, but what we're trying to do it is in small bites. So each week, the book is organized by each week, and it's associated with the church calendar. So, for instance, there's a section, there's four weeks, uh, I'm sorry, six weeks for Lent, seven weeks for the Pentecost. There's obviously Easter, the four weeks of Advent. And so throughout the year, you can visit each one of the important church calendar events each week. And our goal is is to move people closer to Jesus and their relationship with Jesus and to understand more about Jesus. And one of the things that we're finding is uh, the more people read this, the more they answer questions, and we really strongly encourage journaling uh, because it's a good way for you to get your thoughts out on a piece of paper and also watch, watch yourself grow. But by the end of the year, you become immersed in what Jesus said, where he, where he wants us to go, and where he wants us to be. Well, you do it in an interesting way, because you take a, a verse out of the Bible that pertains to that specific, and backwards, specific week, and you kind of like break it down in layman's terms to explain to people what's the idea behind what you've taken, what scripture you've taken out. And then you, you, you ask certain questions, but you don't just tell them just to simply answer the question, but to go back, say a day later, or say even a month later, look back at those questions again and see if you'd answer it in a different way as you learn and grow. Yeah, so that's, that's all done by design. One, you know, people always say, I have to, I have to tell people about Jesus. No, we have to guide people. You know, Jesus will do all the telling when he gets into our heart. And so what, we'll, what we did here was create a framework for people to think and imagine Jesus. But as you said, too, in layman's term, we try to explain the theology um, behind each one of the verses. Like, so, for instance, you know, the first, the first week of Lent, we, we quote the verse, that, um, man does not live by bread alone but by the words of God. So we have an image for that. Um, we've done, obviously, the scripture verses there. We did a brief reflection. And we asked three questions that have people think about, what does that mean? And then we always have a quote each week for people to reflect on. So this is something as you're going throughout your week, you can think back on. And as you said, journal, and then look back on on what you wrote. And what's remarkable, Annie, and this happens to all of us, what I wrote a year ago about a particular verse changes the following year because that's where we are in our relationship with Jesus. And that's what we're trying to help people with. Well, isn't it that why we call it the living word? Because as we grow, it grows. Amen. No. <laughs> My profound thought for the day. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's but that's that's that is such a profound statement on your part. But that's what that's what the Holy Spirit is doing with us, constantly pushing us 
forward in our relationship with uh, Jesus. I heard I heard an interesting quote this week, um, and and I was thinking about it as it relates to Jesus. Somebody said to me, um, "Jesus is all we need," and then said, "No, Jesus is ultimately all we have, because the world is very temporary and very fickle, but we will always have Jesus." We will always have the physical need, but what people don't feed is that spiritual need. And this is the problem that we see in the world too much today. People, because we're being torn away from faith by society, by government, by whatever forces out there, be it the Jezebel spirit or whatever, they try to separate us from our faith. So our spirit doesn't feed. So what do we do? We crave other things to fill that emptiness. And what happens? The wrong things are placed within our reach, which are easy to grab for. And this is where people will lose faith and never return. Yeah, and it gnaws it gnaws away at you um, as you turn away from faith. So, so I have a couple of resolutions for next year to address this this very issue. Any time that you spend watching the news on TV, instead of watching the news on TV. Read the Bible. So if it's 15 minutes, just spend 15 minutes reading the Bible. And people will say to me, well, wait a minute. If I don't watch the news, how am I going to know what's going on? Uh, I did this once, Annie, about five or uh, about 10 years ago. Nothing in my life changed other than I got to know the Bible better. Nothing changed. I couldn't change politics. I couldn't change the stock market. I couldn't even get my to do better just from watching them. So, so that's that's a <laughs> So to me, that's an important resolution. And, and people say, well, wait a minute, I've got to give up the news. Well, when you give up the news, you're giving up the world. And when you take the Bible, you're accepting Jesus. So I, I just throw that out as a challenge. I know for some people that would be extraordinarily difficult to do. Well, actually, you know, I got up this morning. I never even turned the TV on. And it wasn't until after... Um, my mom's therapist left and everything that I, the TV finally went on. Uh, so I, I have no problem turning the TV off. Just once in a while, I'll go on, see what's going on. All right, now I understand. Well, let me walk away. <laughs> I'm one of those. I don't, it, if it's not on, it's not going to bother me. But you know, i got to say, my husband, who's co-hosting with me today, um, uh, has started reading a book that uh, my brother-in-law gave him about, you know, was it uh, the Bible one a day? Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's going through it, you know, day by day, where each day there's a new passage for him. But that that's a very heavy tome to go through for someone that is not familiar with the very ABCs of faith. Whereas your book gives them a great introduction into it, lets them start to understand and and and. A basis to start. Well, I couldn't put that book down. Go ahead. That was very kind of you. So scripture always must be read, in my mind, my opinion, with the Holy Spirit. So when I, before I start reading the Bible, I try to say the Holy Spirit, feed me. In in Jesus' name, I pray. And then proceed to, to read the Bible. Because as we, as we talked about earlier, Annie, a verse that you read in February will have a very different meaning in October, particularly if you keep up with the Bible. 
And that's part of what we're trying to do with this book as well, is to have people see what you call the living word, to see it manifest itself in their lives. Absolutely. You know, and this isn't the only book you've written because, you know, I've had you on with your other books. Um, You're talking about your past as you were a company CEO before you found your way to Jesus uh, called Jesus and Company. And then you followed it up with the other book, um, Your Faith Has Healed You, which is a marvelous book. And, And I know I've told you the story about when my husband was in the hospital and I was told he had just mm. hours and how I right. fell prostrate in prayer until I realized I was praying for the wrong thing. And Yanni, tell, cause now you can tell Bruce exactly what you felt that day. What I felt that day? Yeah. Oh, <clears throat> I was in tremendous pain there for a, a little bit. And then all of a sudden I got warm and I looked up, excuse <clears throat> me, and I saw like a bright light, and that's all I remember actually until I saw Annie come in. And there he is, sitting up in the bed, laughing with the nurses as if nothing had happened. Yeah, talk about uh, it. That is, that's all faith. You know, you can't, you couldn't accomplish that with one without Jesus, which I know you both know, but you couldn't accomplish that without your faith either. And we were 10 miles apart. I was here at home praying while he was in the ICU. We were te- we were not even physically near each other. And yet we had that connection through God. That's a very powerful testimony. Very powerful. Yeah, I do remember you, know, you telling me that story. Yeah. And I, I think it was the most powerful moment that has ever entered my life. Outside of the, the one time... Um, I had walked past a picture of my father. It was on the little card they give you after their funeral. And I just mm-hmm. turned around as I'm walking past the picture. I just reached with two fingers, kissed, my, kissed the fingers, and placed them on the photo. And then I heard a crash. And I'm going, oh, great, the cats got into something. And it was Christmas time. And we were getting all the decorations out, getting ready to put up the tree. And I'm thinking, the cats just got into something and broke something. And I go walking into the living room, and the... Um, closet was open and there was a box open on the floor and the contents were spilt out and I reached down to pick up the box and all it was was a single little card in there with a Christmas ornament don't cry for me this Christmas I'm with Jesus yes talk about someone reaching out of heaven to touch you I mean at the very moment I kissed my father's picture and this was on the fifth anniversary of his passing of all times I mean that's uh yeah, that's such a powerful story, Annie, and that's all because of your faith. Because you can, so part of faith is knowing that you can see, um, and you and you can you can associate coincidences with Jesus. Well, you know, so, I had a conversation with someone the other day, and I said, "Well, how do you know God is in your life?" And I said, "How can you not know?" Just walk outside and look at the beauty around you, the flowers that are blooming, the sun that is shining, you know, the people that wave at you. Each one and everything is a gift from God. Now, you don't have to look very far. You just have to know that what you're looking at is a gift. Yeah, and we, we, I, I'm, I've been doing um, some YouTube videos and podcasts, and I had a guest on last week, and that's exactly what he said, uh, Annie, is that, we we can experience God 
by looking at the world and trying to imagine what could have created it. And there's no human, there's no human that could have created, not even a group of humans. And it isn't about the development of the earth and events like that. This is all orchestrated by God. Um, I, I want to tell you a story, you know, that's similar to yours. My dad died in April and, uh, and he, he was positive. He was going to see Jesus. And as a family, our, we only wanted him to be safe on this transition. And so one of my prayers was not for necessarily, he was very old, and not, not necessarily for God to extend his life, but to get him to be. So one of my prayers was that day and um, the days leading up to that was, I just want to know my dad is safe. That's all I wanted to know. So the following, two, I think it was two mornings later after my dad died, I was sitting on a bench outside in the morning doing my morning prayers, and this bird came and sat unusually close to me. And I remember looking at the bird, if you, this, if you are the message, sing. And the bird started singing and flew away. Oh, wow. <laughs> later that day, later that day, we have... I, my wife and I would catch a whole, collect a whole bunch of these pictures that we find in knickknack stores or things like things that attract our attention. And I happened to be down in the basement um, cleaning out some stuff, and lo and behold, I found a, a picture of two birds, and the the lower bird was an exact replica of the ver- bird that visited me that day, and now oh it's my sits on my desk every day. So it, it happens that. <laughs> You have to be aware that these events mean something. And I don't think people always are good hunters for God. So when somebody says, how do you know there's a God? I say you hunt for God. And these, your story and my story, those are, those are what, that's what faith does. It helps you hunt for God and know that he's in your life. Yeah, there's a million and one little things that occur during the day and, you know, we say God has given us free choice. And one of the choices we have is to pay attention or to not pay attention, yeah. to recognize Amen. it or to ignore it. And it, it is up to us to decide whether or not we're going to be open or closed. And, and, and yes, we have free choice. How you use it and use it wisely is the most important thing in our lives. And, you know, I, I hear people turn around and I'll say, oh, you know, you've got white privilege, you've got this, that. And it's just, wait a minute. The only thing I'm responsible for is my life from the moment I was cognizant to the moment I die. I'm not responsible for what anyone else did before me. But what I do on this earth is what I answer for. And I think that that is something that God wants us to recognize. Oh, absolutely, and and we have to be so careful of identity politics because what it does is it turns us into victims. That what we start saying is, um, I can't be X because I am Y. Instead, what God allows us to do is say, we can be X because Jesus is in our life. And so this identity politics thing, which is, which has ravaged our country this year, creates victims 
It doesn't create powerful, strong people that accept responsibility for what they can do. You know, it's funny because, you know, with everything that's been going on between the COVID, the riots and everything else, um, I have actually been a little bit more vocal in expressing my faith when I do interact in public, you know, wishing everyone a blessed day type of thing. Right. And, you know, uh, you get into a conversation with the perfect stranger, which, you know, I have no qualms doing. And I had some of the most fantastic conversations with perfect strangers. And we end up laughing and just enjoying ourselves because, you know, they, they, they look for someone else that has faith, too. And as long mm-hmm. as you just say, we are all equal children in the eyes of God. We are all God's children. It doesn't matter what package we came in. We are each a child of God. And, you know, the Amen. reaction you all get is, is such a wonderful glow. And whatever barrier there is can be broken if we start looking at each other that way. Yes, Genesis 127. And uh, you, you are a very powerful preacher today, Annie. You're doing your job, <laughs> man. <laughs> Something's in you today, Annie. I, 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 have, I have no way I can fill those shoes. So I am humbled. <laughs> I really am. But, you know, unfortunately, well, fortunately or fortunately, I need like a little bit of a, a rest here. Uh, we're not going to be broadcasting the following two weeks. So this is my last one of the year. So maybe that, that may be motivating me to be a little bit more of a outspoken individual today, <laughs> to put it politely. <laughs> but, you know, what your, your last three or four things you've said really come down to making a decision. It's a choice. You know, you can choose to be miserable or you can choose to reach out and express your faith. You can choose to be, determine your own course with God and you can choose to be happy. And I think that's one of the things that's been so difficult for Americans today or particularly this year is to be able to make that choice um, because identity politics, because of the COVID, um, because of just so many, the, the divisiveness in America is just, it's, it's crazy. And, and the fact of the matter is what you just said is true. 90% of Americans agree, agree with each other, but it's the media that's dividing us. Yeah, it's funny because um, just before going on air, I went out to the sidewalk to pick up my mail, and my neighbor was leaving. She was pulling out of her driveway. And when we first met, we're on opposite sides of the political spectrum completely. You know, I'm 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 hot. She's cold. Uh, so there's nothing on the politics that we basically agree on. Yet we do remain friends, and this is something Americans are, have forgotten. You can be on polar opposites on the political spectrum, but you can still be friends and get along. And, you know, we've had debates, but always politely, always done with respect, and always recognizing that we remain friends no matter what. So as she's pulling out, because she knows that I'm under a lot of stress with the situation I have going on here with dueling walkers and revolving doors of physical therapists and nurses and medical visits going on between the three of us. So she turns around and she goes, is there anything I can do for you? And I just smiled and I said, no, your friendship is all I need. And she just turned Amen. around and she gave me the beautiful smile. So, you know, we, we can still be friends. We can help each other out. So what we don't believe in the same thing politically, 
I may not agree with her lifestyle, and she may think that mine is too rigid to fit hers, and yet we can still get along and have a conversation and share life. And that's the whole thing. We, we get, we, we fail to share life. Right. And we, you know, in, uh, Paul says this in the Bible in a couple of places that we all have different skills and we all can do different things without love and love for each other, particularly none of that is meaningful. That, um, you know, there's some people that are great writers and some people that are great bankers and things like that. But the one common ingredient we can have is love for each other. And that's a huge amen. I may not like you, but I still may love you. <laughs> I told that to my brother. <laughs> it didn't go over too well. <laughs> but then again, I told my mom, my brothers were switched to birth. I don't think they're her sons. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the worst part is she starts to agree with me. <laughs> but there, there has to be laughter too, you know. If yeah. we take everything just too seriously, you know, sometimes you just got to sit back and and just see the laughter in life. You know, I mean, a couple of times my husband will get himself into a situation and he'll start getting really frustrated, and I'll just sit back and I'll look at it, and I'll start cracking up. And all of a sudden, he'll see the humor that I finally see, and then you can relax. And whatever the problem was, it can be overcome. Just let's look at it at a different angle. And, and yeah. this is something I have to learn how to do. We've got our problems, yes. Let's take a step back. Let's find the humor right. in the situation. Try to tackle it in another manner. There's, there's more than one way to, uh, to look at a problem. may not all be Good. right, but maybe if you use a little from A, a little from B, we can get everything to mesh together. And I, I think uh, this is our world needs. So this is so interesting that you, you bring this up because this is actually, I'm in the process now of the uh, fifth book, uh, writing it. And one of the things you have to do as a writer is you have to be able to do what you just said. Because you, if you get caught up in um, I, I got 170 pages I've got to write. It's got to be done by this date and stuff like that. You're never going to produce good work. And sometimes you have to delete entire paragraphs to be able to go forward and to be able to do that walk. So to me, I always tell people, that, you know, writing is about quality, but I think life is about quality and it's not about quantity. Just doing the best you can and, and just because... That was the way we were supposed to go. Maybe there's a different way God wants us to go, and we should give up that way and go to the way of quality, which is usually associated with God. Well, you know, in, in one way, when I, I was reading your book, Spend a Year with Jesus, um, which is it's an it's a easy read. Uh, it's not very long. Anyone can sit down and in a matter of a couple of days go through the whole thing and then go back and do it week by week as you suggest. But one of the things I always do when I do start to write something is I'll hash it out, put it down, walk away. And I'll come back a little bit yeah. while later and I'll look at it and I'll edit it. And I'll put it down and I'll walk it away. And then I'll sit back and I'll re write everything I just had. And then as I'm writing, I'm correcting, I'm changing, I'm altering, I'm adding, I'm deleting. And usually it takes me five sittings before I get something down to the point where I'm, 
I'm satisfied. Oh, yeah. I may not be able oh, to yeah. be happy. But then again, you put it down, you walk away, you come back the next day, and you go, oh, what was I thinking? And then when you get the final yeah. pieces going, now that's worthwhile. And I think yeah, that's I what always, your book does too at the same time. Yeah, well, I, when I get done, I said, who wrote this? You know, because it's, you know, you know it's not, I don't know up with these words. But you've also just described in reverse what, what uh, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit do with us. They keep chiseling us, but chiseling us at the pace that we can understand and that we can handle. And I think that's part of the reason why you use that word, use this wonderful phrase, the living word. That's why the Bible changes, because we've changed. And that's all the chiseling that happens to us every day, particularly when we're walking very closely with Jesus. Well, Dr. Hartman, it has been a pleasure to have you with us. I've actually got to call out to my next guest um, and bring him on air, but people can find you where? www.brucellhartman.com. And uh, I think all of the books, yes, all the books are available for sale on Amazon.com or from my website. Well, if I don't speak to you before Christmas, have a very blessed one. You as well, Andy. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Okay, and don't forget me next time. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I'm so embarrassed, Andy. Bye-bye. Take care. All right, check out Bruce Hartman, uh, Dr. Bruce L. Hartman, I've got the wrong mouse. Okay, I was trying to do that. All right. Now, I've got to uh, play a clip uh, while I try to call out to our next guest. So it's called, Our Country Was Founded on the Truth of God's Word. Um, And I don't even know who this is by, but I'm going to play this clip until I get back. Okay, here we go. That's what it plays. And it's not going to play. Come on. All right.
Southern Sense here live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, iHeart. Oh gosh, the heck with that. I forget half a dozen different places where I just go to the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle of southern sense.com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the least mostest today, the Radio Chickadee. Uh, well, as our next victim up in the batter box, uh, author of a new book out called COVID-19, The Greatest Cover-Up in History, from Wuhan to the White House, Dylan Howard. Good afternoon, Dylan, and welcome to the, our Wacko Show. <laughs> it's good to be here. I'm a little concerned that I've already been identified <laughs> as a victim. <laughs> Um, I got to tell you something. Uh, the Wuhan virus, um, we were talking about it back in December. Uh, the main reason why is that I had friends of mine over in China, actually in Wuhan, serving as missionaries. And we were getting words of something going on back actually in the end of November, December. And then we went into the Chinese New Year, where in China, that is the most traveled two-week period throughout the, their nation. Uh, it's the only time where everyone throughout the country moves freely, and they all have these communal uh, 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 sit-down eats and everything, uh, huge family gatherings, everyone all packed into one room. And we were hearing whispers, as, like I said, as early as late November, early December, that something was going on. Why is it that the Western world wasn't given the wake-up call until the end of December or January? Well, that goes to the very cover-up that is COVID-19. Taiwan, an adversary of China, blew the whistle in late December to the World Health Organization, raising the alarm about human-to-human transmission of a pneumonia-like virus. But they were completely ignored. Why? 
Well, the World Health Organization was once considered an adversary of um, of uh, the world. Taiwan was once considered an adversary of the World Health Organization. Likewise, the World Health Organization was considered an adversary. What took place was that in the 15 years after the SARS epidemic, in which China was completely criticised for, they spent a lot of time rebuilding that relationship. And China lined the coffers of the World Health Organization significantly. So Taiwan was outright dismissed in blowing the whistle on this. In addition to that, um, there were a number of physicians with inside the Wuhan province that used the social media WeChat, the equivalent of Facebook, in China to alert people about this human-to-human transmission of this unknown virus. But instead of the government taking it seriously, they neutered these individuals, they arrested them, they forced them to denounce the claims that they were making. And in one tragic incident, the chief whistleblower, a physician by the name of Dr. Lee, um, actually died of COVID, uh, as tragic as that is, after blowing the whistle on this virus. But he was arrested before that. He was chastised, forced to denounce his claims and effectively cover up what we now know to be the greatest pandemic to hit us, certainly in recent times. Now, uh, China's culpability in all of this is significant, but it's not isolated to China. Many of the plays out of the playbook of the Chinese government, Communist Party, have been adopted by Western democracies in pursuit of political gains. And from one cover-up, it goes to another. Well, you know, it, it, I, like I said, it's something that was really near uh, to me when uh, um, it was breaking out. So I made sure I knew what was going on. And it, they were trying to tie it all into a wet market. This is where live animals, most of them exotic, were sold, uh, some butchered, some not, you know, it, unsanitized conditions. And they were trying to say that the virus came from there. Uh, but that was debunked. Um, there was an article that originally came up on MS, um, MSN uh, and then, reached, then carried by other outlets that there was a Nobel Prize winner out of French, France, uh, virologist Luc Montaner. And he actually was able to break down the virus and showed that it was manufactured. Yes, it was a natural virus occurring, but there was an AIDS virus cut, so it would have the effect it is having on us now. Uh, why aren't we blowing the whistle on that? Uh, I don't know about that research. I don't buy into the research that this was a man-made uh, virus that escaped from a lab. I believe all evidence and science backs up the fact that this was an animal-to-human transition and that uh, it then became a human-to-human transition. There has been a lot of conspiracy theories related to the origins of the virus, but it has been thin on empirical evidence to suggest that. What I can tell you from first-hand experience 
is that I visited on multiple occasions wet markets in China um, in 2007 and 2008 as a foreign correspondent for an Australian television network. And what I discovered was that you can buy any type of animal that you want for any price. Um, now, you also have to understand that there are cultural sensibilities around China that don't necessarily exist in Western societies. We're not going to eat the types of meats that they do that are considered a delicacy. Um, so to that end, uh, I think that, again, responsibility must be placed upon um, the World Health Organization and primarily China for their handling of the virus and why they didn't react in a more speedy and forceful manner. It took the World Health Organization two or three weeks to even go to the Wuhan province as they were publicly praising China for its handling at a time that we know they were allowing people from the Wuhan province to fly out of that region. And I don't have empirical evidence beyond Taiwan's initial instance of blowing the whistle on its intelligence about the spread of human-to-human -human virus, um, this human-to-human -human virus. But anecdotally, I can tell you, I'm not one person to get sick. In the days before Christmas of last year, I had flown from New York City to the Cayman Islands. On my return leg, I flew Cayman Islands, Miami, Miami, Atlanta, Atlanta, Los Angeles, Los Angeles, Auckland, Auckland, Australia. Within days, I became violently ill with all of the symptoms of COVID-19. The house in which I was living, a family home, I infected other people. It was a classic case of everything they tell us about COVID-19. And though I did seek medical attention, I was diagnosed with influenza A, bird flu. Now, one could argue at that stage, the Australian medical authorities were not aware of this particular virus. There is a sneaking suspicion in my mind that I might have been carrying a virus that could have been percolating on one of these planes from a Chinese traveller who might have been at in the Wuhan province. Yeah, and I, I know I was hearing a lot of stories about people initially being uh, diagnosed with influenza A rather than the actual Wuhan virus. It wasn't until later on that they were re-diagnosed with the correct Wuhan virus. Um, but there's a lot of sketchy stuff that was going on in China at the time that this was all starting, uh, such as they're buying up the PPEs, the personal protection equipment uh, worldwide and hoarding it. They knew something was going, was going to be unleashed. I mean, you don't do that unless you're preparing for something. Um, there was a lot of sketchy things the Chinese were doing. So whether or not you think it's a conspiracy theory, but when you look at how many coincidences are out there, and when you have a Nobel Peace Prize winning uh, doctor 
that his his, his specialty is viruses uh, from the uh, Louis Pasteur Institute in Paris saying, hey, listen, I have been able to break this down and say that there are man-made segments to this virus. Someone altered it. It, it raises a question, is this a worldwide attack on us by communist China? Are they trying to break down our society by causing us to lock down, causing our economies to collapse? Is this what we're, we're honestly looking at? Because you look at what's going on in California, New York, complete lockdown. Their economies are collapsing. So that is the consensus around the conspiracy theory that China is intending to implement itself as a world superpower. Now, again, I can't speak to the conspiracy of that or the research that the individual that you mentioned has done, as I have not uh, thoroughly researched it. But what I can say is that as a society, the impact of COVID-19 and how it has crippled society ought to make the world realise that we are very vulnerable to a biochemical attack using a pandemic. And foes of this country would look upon America and indeed other countries as being vulnerable and susceptible if they wanted to demolish our economy. And I think that looms large as the potential next world war that we could face. So what do we do to avoid that? Well, I think there universally has been missteps uh, in every country in their reaction to the virus. Particularly here in the United States, I think it's become weaponized because we're in a uh, election year and both sides of the political aisle used it to their advantage. So where to from here? It's not about apportioning blame because that's very easily done depending on what your ideological beliefs are. But a bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee that investigates the virus, how it got to America, when we knew about it, what we did about it, why we chose to do about it, who did what, who didn't do something, is critical to preparing humankind to avoid a repeat of COVID-19. And touch wood, it doesn't happen in our generation, but there were fundamental abject failures of government and health institutions here in the United States in response to COVID that we ought to learn from so as to insulate ourselves as best we can from a repeat of what has taken place. Yeah, and then we have a governor in New York who turns around and sticks COVID patients in nursing homes that are ill-equipped to handle anything such as that. And then, oh, no, it, he's not to blame for all those deaths. Yeah, there was a lot of blame and a lot of blood to, on others' hands that you know we can apportion here. But you make a point that we have to look at what happened here. What did go wrong so that we can turn around and put into place safeguards? So if anything well, I, like I, this... I'm, yeah, I'm up. utterly disappointed, utterly disappointed in the government um, at state levels and at federal level. Um, though Donald Trump may be a lame duck president serving out a month and a half to go, not even that now, um, 
we still are not communicating with our people about the vaccination process. I couldn't tell you which vaccination is better than another, how it should be administered, how I go about getting it, what's the potential side effects of it. And that's why we elect leaders to inform constituents, especially in times of crises, on what they can do to mitigate the issue. And it would behoove the President of the United States to address the nation from the Oval Office and tell us about the pandemic. Because at the moment, there is so much information that is not being communicated and so much misinformation out there that if his lasting legacy is Operation Warp Speed, he should be proud of his um, final act in office. But at the moment, you know, as I said, I can't sit here in this interview and tell you whether you should get the Pfizer vaccine or you should get another vaccine because the information just doesn't exist or if it does exist, it's not being presented to the public the way it should be. Well, it, as the vaccines are being distributed to each state, it's up to each state's governor to determine how to do that. And it should be up to the CDC and to the, the uh, distributors of the vaccine to say, all right, this contains X, Y, Z. These are the side effects so that when they get to the distribution points, a person can make a informed decision. Now, I do know the Catholic Council of Bishops has already made a public statement about the Pfizer uh, virus and um, what's the other manufacturer, the two that are out there now? Uh, uh, I, it, yes, yes. <laughs> Rainfart, sorry about that. But the two that are out there now do not contain uh, fetal cell tissues. So they're saying, don't worry about these. They don't have aborted babies in it. These vaccines are safe for you to go for as a Christian and as a Catholic. So there is information starting to come out, but not enough yet. And what vaccines are in the works, no one knows. But we do know that two have, are already for distribution. And the first plane load has actually come across to the United States and is in states right now for distribution. That's correct, but only 4,000, as of yesterday, I believe, 4,000 vaccines were administered in one of the country's greatest hotspots, New York City. Um, so, again, this comes down to the issue of states being in control. I don't think the states are equipped to deal with this. In times of crisis, is it up to the states to deal with potentially a world war? Or is it a nationwide, unified federal government response? I would argue the latter. And this has been the equivalent of our World War Three, And leaving it up to the states in an election year, confused individuals, sowed misinformation, prevented people from understanding the true extent, the, uh, the discounting of leading scientific figures by various individuals confuse the public and split us even further on ideological lines. You only need to look at the exit polls of the election to understand that the economy and COVID were the two highest priority issues for voters. 
So knowing that, um, we only fed into the type of misinformation that you would expect from the Chinese Communist Party by allowing states to manage the response. I think this needs the equivalent of a proctology examination in retrospect. I don't don't know about that. I mean, as to getting it out to the states, federal government, yes, I can see. But each state is unique. What works in New York or New York City does not work down here in South Carolina. No way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, of course, to our our governor, as our governor here in South Carolina has done, he's made public statements going, the vaccines are going out to X, Y, Z part of the population first. We've got so many vaccines in. As soon as others are available to the rest, we're going to let you know so we can schedule you. Our state is staying informed. What the governor of New York does, well, I can't even try to explain what the heck this guy's doing. So should the people of New York suffer a disservice, yet the people of South Carolina, because they have, and and again, I'm not apprised of this, but they have a uh, political savvy and prudent uh, governor, should the people of New York suffer as a result? I think it behooves the CDC to be the one who is um, providing the guidelines here and not leaving it up to individual states. Well, then should the people of South Carolina suffer for the stupidity of the governor of New York? Put it in well, the governor of New York wouldn't be making the decisions. It would be up to scientists and the CDC to make those decisions about how best to track the COVID vaccination process and rollout. And I think it, I, I do believe that is a federal uh, obligation. Well, that's where our Constitution steps in and says, well, if it you does. try to do that, you'll be breaking the Constitution, breaking the law. So then again, it comes up to the people of New York to elect a responsible government. And it, they don't get it right all the time. <laughs> in the middle of a pandemic, You can't elect someone and you don't have a crystal ball in electing someone on how they're going to deal with a pandemic, which is why I think for humanity to thrive and survive during its most difficult time, that we do need to look to scientists and leading experts and not politicians to guide us through a time of crisis. Well, we can look to them for guidance, but we still have to depend upon the rule of law to keep our society ordered. Otherwise, we'd fall into complete anarchy. Because scientists are not always the brightest bulbs in the box when it comes to practicality. They may be looking at their microscopes and books, but not looking at reality. I would take experts on the (laughs) COVID-19 research over President Donald Trump or others. I don't have more faith that. Where can people find you and your book? They can go to WuhanToTheWhiteHouse.com and follow me on Instagram at Dylan. Well, Dylan, thank you for joining us. And uh, the book is interesting. Um, I, there were some things I agreed with, as you can hear, and some things I disagreed with. But it is a very interesting read. And it sheds some light on what is going on and why it's going on. I appreciate your time. Thank you. I do. Thank you, sir. And have a Merry Christmas. You too. Take care. Dylan Howard, check out the book, COVID-19, The Greatest Cover-Up in History, from Wuhan to the White House, and the website is Wuhan to the White House. All right, guys, um, 
We're waiting for our next guest to call in, and hopefully he'll be calling in shortly. Um, but uh, there's other stuff going on in the news uh, while we're waiting for Lucas Miles to call in. Um, let me see what I got here. And you with me, Yanni? Oh, let me unmute you. I got to unmute you. Okay, there you go. You're with me, right? All right. Catch this article that came up, and I turned around and goes, only in California. Can something like this only happen in California? And it looks like our next guest may be in the line. If it is, uh, please press one if this is our next guest, Lucas. Um, Only in California can this happen. Uh, This was in American Action News. Uh, San Francisco Board of Supervisors voted 10 to 1 to ban smoking in many private homes. Unless it's marijuana. Wonderful. Unless it's marijuana. So you can't smoke in your home in your own home unless it's pot. <laughs> so only in California. We'll put that aside for now. And let's bring our next guest in. He's got a fantastic new film out and I saw the advertisements up all over Newsmax and I was I was getting ready to reach out to see, you know, who's distributing it, who I talk to about it and lo and behold in my inbox I get an email and they're offering up um, the director and producer of the show uh, Lucas Miles and the name of the movie the director is Lucas Miles the name of the movie is The Penitent Thief uh, which stars some fantastic actors in it so let's bring Lucas in and good afternoon Lucas and how are you today hey I'm doing well thanks for having me you know, uh, I had Dr. Uh, Bruce Hartman on, and uh, he loved the way I was giving testimony today. So I, I love it when I have <laughs> certain tests that just fall into a certain theme. And uh, since this is my last show before the new year, I guess I've got the spirit in me. <laughs> so I'm on right the on. Today. I love it. Well, I'm honored to be here. <laughs> oh, it is our pleasure. Now, I, I've got to say that um, I had been seeing the commercials for your movie, the previews for the movie up on Newsmax, and uh, yeah. I love Kevin Sarp. I love him dearly, uh, and his wife, Sam. And I heard that they were involved in the film, and I said, geez, i got to find out more and more about this film. And as I was getting ready to do an Internet search, also my email lights up, and I go to check it, and it's your agent uh, sending me <laughs> the promo information on the movie. And I said, Dang, I mean, the good Lord is up there sitting on my shoulder, <laughs> listening to the crazy thoughts in my head. And she sent it over to me, sent me also the film itself to preview. And oh, my goodness, I, towards the very end, I was crying. Uh, it Aww. is a powerful, wonderful, wonderful film. And I, uh, the author of the book, I wanted to know, how far did you stray from what he wrote? Because there was a couple of things that um, I picked out immediately that was just a little bit different. Sure. So, yeah, the the, the book is called uh, The Tale of the Penitent Thief, and the film is called The Penitent Thief. And actually, the author is our executive producer. So Don Willis, fabulous writer and uh, dear friend, and he approached me a few years back about the idea of bringing this to the screen. And, you know, in, in the film, uh, and I don't think this gives away too much, you know, this is a backstory on the two thieves on the cross and how they, how they might have ended up on either side of Jesus. Now, Don writes this in his book as the two thieves, Dismas and Jotham, are brothers. And the book does some things that become very challenging to do on screen, that there's a, 
there's a big plot tr- twist in the book that, um, uh, that that's probably the biggest difference between the book and the film um, that is, is uh, it works in your imagination, but it doesn't work the same way in the visual on the screen. So we modified this and kind of adapted it for, uh, for film. And I think we were able to really carry the essence of it. Uh, but, you know, both certainly stand alone and, and uh, harmonize well together uh, there. So the, the film comes out December 22nd. As you mentioned, it stars Kevin Sorbo as, as King Herod. A lot of people aren't used to seeing Kevin in a uh, in kind of the villain role. Uh, and so it's a unique, okay. uh, unique role for him. Evil. Yeah. And so Celio <laughs> uh, Cervante, J.G. Anoni, uh, you know, so I've just been so blessed to be part of this project and a wonderful film to direct. And uh, we got to shoot in Arkansas and Texas and then in Hollywood. And uh, it, it's just been uh, just been a real, real amazing journey. And we're thankful to be able to get a product out here in uh, in a COVID year like 2020. It's not an easy year to uh, finish up a film, but uh, we made it and it'll it comes out December 22nd on uh, video on demand. Yeah, it is. It's a marvelous, marvelous film. And I was I was looking at some of the articles that were talking about the film over the years as you were going through production. And um, it said it was an Italian film. And I'm going, okay, you've got Italian actors in it. Does that make it Italian? Wait a minute. I'm going, I'm going my, doing my research. And as you said, it was filmed in Texas and Arizona. This is an Italian film, Lucas? <laughs> I can't speak to that particular article. Um, you know, it could have been uh, Don wrote part of this while he was traveling. He's, uh, he's done quite a bit of world traveling, so it could have just been a reference to him writing part of it over there. Uh, but uh, not sure. No, it, it is a... It's a, it's a period piece around the time period of Christ. Uh, there's certainly a component of, uh, you know, the Roman, uh, the Roman occupation uh, during, uh, uh, during the, the first century uh, that it covers. And so that could also put, maybe play into that conversation. But, uh, you know, we filmed here in the U.S. and um, a great slate of actors. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think it's going to be a refreshing take on the crucifixion story from a little bit different angle from what people are used to. You know, instead of seeing, you know, certainly it, it, it whenever, it, you know, the the um, the person of Jesus intersects in the film, we really try to stay true to the scriptural account uh, when, you know, there's opportunity to kind of uh, bring in some imagination and some uh, some maybe what if fiction to that. Uh, we certainly took some liberties there. And um, I, I think it really comes together well and, and it's going to take that audience through a journey of redemption and forgiveness and some very important themes. Well, you know, uh, it's coming out just before Christmas, and everyone's going, uh, uh, would probably think, you're, you, this is the subject you're talking about, the crucifixion of Christ and the two thieves that were crucified with them. Why Christmas? But yet your movie starts with yes. the birth. Yes. So there is a reason, because Christ and Christmas start the very opening of your, your movie. Yes, and so and I actually, uh, I you know, as a director, you get the opportunity to maybe put yourself in a little cameo, and uh, I play a small cameo in the beginning of the film as Joseph, and so um, it uh, that was just a real fun thing to direct and to be able to act in this a little bit. And so the film does start with the birth of Christ, and there's sort of a unique twist on how uh, the thieves interact, even as young boys, with the uh, with the birth of Christ at the Nativity. And uh, and then of course their uh, their fate is sealed together uh, on the three crosses uh, at the end of the film. Absolutely, you know, um, if people aren't familiar with the story of the uh, two thieves that were crucified, they're never 
named in the Bible. It's only in the book of Nicodemus later on, about four centuries later, I believe it was, that he actually named only one as Dismas. And the other one was believed to be Geistus on the other. Um, But in the film, if I saw it correctly, and I I had to go back over it and make sure I was looking at it right, you have Geistus being killed early, and then it's Dismas' brother that ends up on the cross next to him. Uh, But throughout the myths that circulated after the book of Nicodemus, they were naming Geistus as the one on the other cross. So I I saw that was a change that you made in the film. Was there a reason for that? Yeah, so there's actually, uh, you know, Don did quite a bit of homework on um, the, uh, I guess, the church history accounts of the the various stories of the thieves. And you're correct. You know, Scripture does not mention names there. Those those names kind of come up later. Dismiss is the is the one that you hear most commonly, uh, you know, as the uh, as really referenced as the penitent, you know, thief. Um, there's a couple other names that come into church history, and one of those is this name Jotham. And so Don chose to kind of go with that variant of the story, and um, uh, you know, I suppose there'd be different paths to take for it, but that's that's the direction that our writer went, and and uh, and I think it, it it worked out well, and I I like the twist of the the idea of them being brothers. I mean, certainly we don't know that for sure. Um, but, uh, I think that it's, it makes the story a little bit more compelling and the challenges there, uh, between the two and just this search for redemption, I think, uh, become very powerful in that regard. Well, I, I like the way that, you know, the book and you developed, I have not had the pleasure of reading the book. Maybe you can send me a copy. Hint, hint. Sorry. Yeah, well, hint, I'll, hint. I'll make sure Don can just make that happen. <laughs> but I like the way you, the, the characters, the two brothers, you, they grow and you can see, understand why they became who they became. And as right. they morph through life to understand why one would be forgiving and one not. Um, and then yes. it also, you know, when you look at the myth and the mysteries around the crucifixion and how uh, Russian Orthodox and Greek Orthodox create their crucifixes in one direction where Catholics do it in a different way. The pointing of yep. Christ's head, all the depictions, always to the right, always to the good thief, or yep. later to be known as Saint Dismas, the Saint yes. of Thieves. Um, so there's a, a glorious story woven through the whole thing, which I enjoyed watching as you caused it to unfold and go like, yeah, well, if this was who was hanging next to him, why did he say what he said? And then think back the time they lived in, what was going on, and what type of life must they have been living? What did they have to go through to reach this point? And it, it brings richness to the scripture. I, I think so, too. And, and first of all, kudos on your, uh, your church history knowledge. Uh, that's uh, Most hosts I talk to uh, are not uh, that informed, which is awesome. And so uh, I think it's, <laughs> it, there is. There's a real rich story here. There's a rich history to it. You know, this is a this is this is probably the most depicted historical moment in that we have in art history, in religious history. Uh, I mean, this is a central theme to humanity, regardless if you know somebody is a, is a Christian or not, or maybe what denomination they belong to. I mean, this is this is a this is a um, it's a it's a it's a moment in time that affects humanity in one way or another, regardless of what you believe. And we really tried to put together a film. Um, that that although certainly faith adjacent, that it really gives the audience an opportunity to you know enjoy a, a story about two brothers and what they might have went through, the challenges that they had, 
you know, being ripped out of their, uh, uh, you know, kind of original homeland and situation and thrust into this uh, sort of, you know, really uh, uh, marauder-like lifestyle um, and being raised by, by this band of thieves and what that might have produced in them and the, the internal uh, conflict and turmoil. And, and I think that that was captured, you know, well, J.G. Noni, who plays Dismiss, just did uh, just a fabulous actor. And, you know, I think a lot of uh, your audience would recognize him from, from different pieces, as well as James Russo, who uh, uh, plays opposite Kevin Sorbo in the, in the King Herod sequence uh, and plays uh, uh, one of uh, um, Herod's sort of uh, uh, lead generals uh, named Castor. Castor? Yeah, just does a tremendous job. Yes. Castor or Castor? What's the Castor? Castor. Oh, Castor, okay. So he, yeah, yeah. So yeah, he, that's James Russo's character. So, yeah, he's the general that kind of carries out the uh, slain of the innocents there early on in the film. You know, it, 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 people think about, when, when you mention a name, they think about that individual as if they're living here in today's world. They don't think about the world that they actually existed in and the situation yeah. which existed in. And we see that with the, the tearing down of statues today. You know, they wanted to tear down Abraham Lincoln. Excuse me? The, 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 the president <laughs> that freed the slaves? Really? You wanted to, But they don't take the person in their natural environment. Who were they? What did they go through? How did they live? And if you think about living in Nazareth, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, at the time of the Roman rule, the cruelty of the yeah. Roman rule, the dominion of the Roman rule. And why are these guys bandits living up in the hills? Can't they get themselves a decent job? You know, why are they fighting the government? You know, they weren't not just bandits. They were rebels. And they were yeah, proud of true. being rebels. Yeah. Um, so what was the environment they lived in? What were the circumstances that brought them to that point? And when we have a period piece like yours, it, it is a teaching moment that I think we've got to take our kids to because history is not being taught. Religion is not being taught. Faith is not allowed to exist within our youth. And, and a film coming out like yours now at this time, I think is wonderful. Well, I appreciate that. And I agree. I think that, uh, you know, uh, true history, real history is certainly uh, hard to find. And, you know, we don't claim by any means that uh, that this film is, you know, uh, a complete, you know, accurate per- portrayal of every single historical, you know, event during that time period. There is there is a fictionalized aspect to the story, and it's intended for that. But we really did try to capture the the overview of of not only the story, but also of what it, life might have looked like, you know, at that time with the Roman occupation, you know, of uh, uh, of Israel. And and uh, I, I think that um, I, I think you're right. I mean, this is this is I think a great teaching moment for families to talk through. And you know, we invite families to sit down and say, okay, this is how this is how this film depicted it. You know, what does scripture say? What is you know, what does the history book say about this particular time period? There's a lot of things that can be learned, you know, through this. And so we, we hopefully, you know, uh, we hope that people enjoy the film and if it can become a teaching resource for families or, uh, or create some deeper, deeper conversation about faith, uh, that's certainly welcomed as well. Well, it's funny. I had my physical therapy yesterday and one of the therapists was telling his patient that, you know, the 12 days before Christmas, every day they pick out a Christmas film to watch. Uh, whether or not it's, um, oh, I don't know, Halloween, Christmas, or whatever. They pick out any sure. sort of a Christmas 
thing. And the last day they show the, the nativity movie. I'm going to let him know about your movie, telling him that you come out on December 22nd, that they should include this in one of their movies to watch because it starts <laughs> off with Christmas. I like that idea and uh, certainly appreciate that. Yeah, the film, uh, The Penance of Thief, comes out December 22nd, just in time for uh, Christmas and some holiday uh, uh, binge watching. I know a lot of people are, are taking some time off for the especially with uh, with still some of the uh, the you know concerns with COVID and shutdowns and those things. Uh, whether you like it or not, I think it's a, a good time to uh, catch up with family there, watch a great film, and you know it stars Kevin Sorbo and uh, Stelio Savante, J. G. Anoni, James Russo, um, and it's I think it's I think it's great uh, a great holiday film that you could watch at Christmas or Easter, uh, really for the whole family. You know, I, I like the way you 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 also had in the film and your author also uh, had in the film where you brought in certain high points within the life of Christ and you wove dismiss into all those high points uh, where you to um, uh, oh good lord I'm having some brain farts here you brought him to uh, (laughs) Darius the the, uh, fisherman and it was at a point coming close into the moment of the sermon on the mount uh, and all yeah, those things, you both did yeah. fishmen and fishnets, and I go, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, they, so, you know, you have Jesus, you know, speaking at the Sermon on the Mount, depicted in the film, and that is, you know, taken really verbatim from Scripture and, and uh, you know, uh, as accurate as possible to uh, what Jesus shared. And then, but, you know, you never think about who was in the audience that day. You know, this is a big crowd that was drawn, and who was there, you know, and this, if they're up on a hillside, and he's able to be heard for, you know, uh, kind of across this, uh, uh, you know, maybe this, this, this ridge or this valley, uh, you know, what, you know, maybe who showed up. And so, you know, you see Dismas and his brother there, Jotham, and, and you see them, that's a turning point in their lives where, you know, uh, uh, one brother is trying to begin to turn his life around to really find a path back to redemption. And the other brother is, is uh, still continuing in uh, this life of crime. And, you know, uh, a good criminal knows that a big uh, mass gathering is a great opportunity for some pickpocketing. And so, you know, he's there doing the things that, 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 that he knew at that time. And you feel that inner turmoil between the two brothers. And it actually ends up being a really powerful scene. And, and uh, you know, the audiences will have to, you know, watch it to be able to get the full story there. But it's, it's, a, it's a powerful moment in the film. And I, I winced when I saw the Praetorian Guard with the Cat of Nine Tails. And I go, oh, yeah. my goodness. Does anyone know what that does to a human body? It rips all the way into the flesh, down to the bone, pulling out muscle and whatever else. That, uh, it is one of the most horrendous torture tools that has ever been invented by man. Yes, yes. You know, that was, um, that was actually J.G. Anoni's first day uh, on, on set. So he literally flew in from Hollywood. Uh, got out. It was a cold day. We we shot that particular portion at the uh, Great Passion Play in Arkansas, in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. It's a fabulous uh, venue there that a, a man named Randall Christie runs, and it's the longest uh, it's the longest running outdoor passion reenactment in the uh, in the country, in North America, I think actually. And uh, Randall is uh, just has a real vision for sharing the gospel through the uh, telling of the passion. And, you know, so we, we were able to kind of utilize some of their sets and modify some things to really work for, uh, for screen. And we filmed that scene. It was cold outside. Uh, and so here we have Jay, you know, who, uh, you know, the actor doing this is, you know, really stripped down to, uh, 
you know, just kind of this, uh, this, these claws covering him. And, and, you know, we have this scene and of course we're not using a real instrument like that, but you know, the, the, you know, the, the kind of leather whips that we're whipping him with still did not feel good. And, uh, you know, <laughs> any actor, and, you know, we heard this with Jim Caviezel from the passion and, and, you know, any actor being put in that position, there's still an aspect of that role that you have to become and to really, uh, um, to endure that. And, you know, although, you know, we won't for one moment, you know, claim that it's the same as what Christ went through, uh, you start to feel some of that humiliation, I think. And uh, that was a tough day on set. And, and you know, it was a tough day for, for the actors uh, to go through it. But I, I think that it turned out really well on screen. And, you know, you always try to find the balance of, you know, you want this to be real, but you don't want it to be so gruesome that nobody can watch it. And so, you know, we tried to find that place. And I think it's one of those ones that kind of you feel that punch in the gut of it. But, uh, um, you know, but our intention is not just to gross out the audience, you know, with this. And so uh, I, I think that it ends up just being a very emotional scene uh, as we see uh, our, our, our one of our thieves dismiss really go through that experience. Yeah. And I was wondering where you were getting the sets from where you were showing you know the the the, uh, the stone uh, pathways and the prison walls yeah. and a lot of that stuff. I was wondering where you were getting that stuff from because I couldn't think of any place in Texas that <laughs> would be. <laughs> you know, it took searching far and wide to find some of these places. The Great Passion Play in Arkansas that was a great location for us. Uh, the Roman uh, there's a Roman uh, base that's kind of uh, takes place in, in in the film. It's in Britannica uh, in the north and. Um, uh, you know, what would have been kind of eventually, you know, uh, more modern day Europe. And that is, uh, that was also in Arkansas. There's a, uh, there's a Roman fort reenactment that we were able to, to, uh, to film that for a while. And then um, in Texas, we shot a place called Capernaum Village. And uh, it's a film studio. Um, and it is, it's just a really cool location. Uh, has everything you kind of expect to find in Texas. But, you know, when you, when you go to the Middle East, uh, to a place like Israel, uh, one of the things I hear all the time from people is it's so much greener than I imagined it being. And, you know, it's not, uh, you know, it's, if you've never been there, it's not just desert land. You know, there are, there's shrubs and trees and, and, and grasses and these things. And so, you know, Texas actually really performed well for us, uh, giving us that look that we were going for and showcasing things well. And Capernaum Village already has some wonderful sets built. It's actually the same place where the, the Chosen series filmed. Uh, they actually filmed right after us at the same location. Uh, but I think we were able to kind of make it our own, and um, it, it just worked out great. Well, if people don't realize it was, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, and I'll probably date myself, in the 60s and 70s, there was a massive movement to green. Um, I don't mean make it energy efficient, but to make it greener in Israel. Uh, they were doing these massive irrigation and planting projects. And if people don't realize that the more you plant, the more it's going to get greener uh, because it's going to trap the greenhouse gases. It's going to warm it up. It's going to moisturize the ground. And Israel was able to revitalize itself because it had this huge plantings, uh, whether it was uh, olive groves or anything else out there. They brought life to a desert land that was barren back just a handful of years before. Uh, A matter of fact, uh, when, grandfather passed away we had a tree planted in his honor in israel and we're oh, wow, Roman cool. <laughs> so <laughs> no, that's, one of the that's things cool and i had a friend of mine her mother was a holocaust survivor when she passed away i had 
written to Israel and made sure a tree was planted in her name. And so through things like this, Israel has been able to bring lushness to what was once a desert. So I can understand why Texas would serve you better for the period piece. Yes. Yeah, it just it worked out well, you know, just the uh, um, the opportunity. Now, there's certain things. I mean, it was interesting. I, I told somebody the other day that uh, the, the we kind of had this cave area that we shot the, the nativity scene in. And uh, sort of on this hillside there at Capernaum Village in in, um, in Weatherford, Texas, outside of Dallas. And every single day we had to go through there and check for uh, copperheads. And we had a couple uh, we had a couple baby copperheads that we pulled out of kind of the 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 manger area, very close to where uh, baby Jesus was. But uh, we had to take care of each day. We had a snake wrangler on set and everything. So you know, uh, filming movies it's always interesting. You never know what you're going to run into. And uh, but it was uh, just just. I think, uh, you know, the team came together, uh, final product, I think works out really well. And we're just excited for the Penance of Thief to hit, uh, uh, to hit uh, video on demand on December 22nd uh, for, you know, your audience to be able to uh, take a peek at. Well, you know, I, I was watching the credits and then I didn't get a chance to go back to re-roll them a second time, but I noticed you had a lot of help. Uh, I saw there were yeah. some missionaries that actually stepped up to give you a hand, whether it was on the set or with the catering. Um, there was a lot of people that helped you all the long way. Tell us about some of the groups. Yeah, you know, making a film like this, it's especially a period piece. This is not a this is not a one person job. It's not even a five person job or a ten person job. It takes really, uh, you know, a pretty significant group. And so, you know, we had a crew of about thirty. Uh, 35, maybe even some days 40 people that were working on this film on a, on a day-to-day basis, you know, throughout the entire shooting process. Uh, those are all, you know, those are all paid crew members that are doing this professionally. Uh, we did have a few interns from a, a couple of the, the nearby uh, film, college, film schools and colleges around to be part of it. And then at both locations, both in Capernaum Village and as well as uh, in um, uh, at the Great Passion Play, you know, there were teams there that just wanted to help and wanted to volunteer. And so, you know, we're, we're not a giant studio production. We're an independent, uh, independent film with a restricted budget and, and really just a group of believers that want to see this message get out there. And, and so um, they were just great at helping us organize uh, some people to help. So everything from, you know, helping with, uh, with catering, making a meal for us. Uh, one group came in. The, there was actually a, a, what we called the Cowboy Church uh, near Weatherford, Texas. They came out with a bunch of their animals. You know, so some of the horses that we use, the donkey that we use, these were provided to us by uh, uh, the Cowboy Church there uh, in in Weatherford. And so, you know, just real real cool just to see the community come together for a film like this and just the excitement around it and the, the desire to share the final product. Uh, it, just, it just makes it really worth doing. And so uh, just a real blessing to all of us involved. Well, you know, in the last two decades or so, um, there has been a small growing hunger for more faith-based entertainment. Um, I think that was started with uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion, and yeah. it's just been slowly warming up. Uh, matter of fact, the name of your production company is 413. Now, there's a reason why it's called 413, and I believe it's from Philippians. Philippians 413. So, yeah, Don Willis, our executive producer, that's his company. And then I partnered with him. So my company is called Miles Media. So it's a 413 film in association with Miles Media. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it was an honor to team up with Don. I mean, he's really got a passion for seeing the gospel go out. You know, I, I do both faith films as well as, you know, family-friendly content and, 
you know, have done a couple past movies, uh, including Rodeo Girl, which I worked with Kevin Sorbo on before, uh, which was a Netflix release for a couple of years, and another film called Crowning Jewels, uh, J-U-L-E-S, about two twin sisters on a road trip across the country. And, and so Don and I have been able to kind of uh, team up on a couple of things in the past, and this was our first kind of joint venture together. And, and uh, 413 and Miles Media, we both just have a passion to, uh, uh, to see this message of, of God's love and grace reach the world uh, however we can. And uh, it was a real honor to work together and, and just to bring uh, The Pen as a Thief to screen. Well, you know, if anyone is not aware of what 413 is, it states, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I, I, that is a perfect, perfect for this film, because that's all what Christ is about. Absolutely. And you know what? It also, it also kept us going on set a few days. You know, there were plenty of times where it felt like we needed that kind of power in order to finish the days out. And, and uh, you know, this is, you know, when you, when you make a movie, maybe not everybody realizes this, but it's... Uh, you know, you commonly have days that are, uh, you know, 12, 14, 16 hour days, sometimes probably 18 hour days on a couple of them when things were, uh, uh, you know, really the most challenging and, and, you know, in Texas over hundred degree weather. And so, you know, really being able to remind ourselves that we can all do all things through Christ that strengthens us was, uh, uh, was definitely a, uh, uh, you know, something that kept us going, uh, through some of the more challenging parts of, of making a movie. Well, you know, you do your own podcast and everything, so you'll understand why I have this on my website, which is the name of the show, Southern Sense, with the dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. i got to plug myself every now and then. Um, on my website, um, I have Matthew five eleven to 12. It says, blessed are you when others rebel all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So I figure every yeah. time I get hit by a troll, <laughs> I go back to Matthew. Yep. Hey, that's a good reminder. Yeah, that's a good re- There's a lot of people throwing arrows these days. They're shooting arrows, and, and, and uh, I think it's always good to know, uh, you know that we're really living for an audience of one and, and just what, a, what an awesome opportunity just to serve, serve the king of the world. And so... Um, you know, and, and I think that, uh, you know, you're doing a great job in that. Well, like I said, you have your own a radio show. Uh, I believe it's through Faithwire, right? It's called the Lucas Miles Show. Do I have that correct? Yeah, so the Lucas, yeah, yep, the Lucas Miles Show. It's uh, hosted by Faithwire. It's also a featured podcast on the Edify Podcast Network. Um, and, yeah, I've been doing that show. Uh, we're probably, I don't know, maybe, I think we just posted our 116th episode. So I've been doing that for a couple of years now. And uh, which has just been incredible. I, I interview um, uh, celebrities and influencers about their faith journey. So past guests have been people like Mario Lopez and Kathy Lee Gifford and Jim Caviezel. And we just did a, a long interview with uh, uh, Candace Cameron Bure. And so these are typically sit down, you know, interviews in person as often as we can. Uh, obviously, COVID has thrown a little bit of a wrench in that. But uh, uh, and really talking about their story and, you know, people you don't you know, maybe not used to hearing from, you know, Mario Lopez was one of my favorite interviews. And, uh, you know, this, he's just an incredible guy of faith and, uh, you know, strong Catholic family. Uh, and, he, you know, he's, he's just, I think, getting bolder and bolder about talking about uh, the importance of that uh, in his, in his, uh, on, on his social media platforms and his life, uh, the, re, the way in which his faith has impacted his, his journey. And just that gratitude that he has, you know, I just did an interview with Candace Bure from Fuller House. And, you know, Candace has just been an outspoken Christian and just, you know, loves the Lord. And so I do interviews like that on the Lucas Miles show. 
And then I'm also a co-host on a, on a podcast called The Church Boys, which is also on the Edify Podcast Network. And uh, The Church Boys is actually one of the uh, – it's around the top 100 faith uh, – or excuse me, one of the top 100 news commentary shows in the country. Uh, and it's, it's sort of a fun take on the news. Uh, it's, it's three of us, the news from a sort of conservative faith background. Uh, it's a lot of laughs. We like to make fun of each other and joke about stories, and, and, but also bring some uh, relevant content as well. And so my co-hosts on that are Chris Fields and Billy Hollowell, and they've just been uh, just been really fun to work with. So I got my hands in a few different things, and and I uh, got a new book actually coming out uh, uh, this this next year. I'll have to come back on and tell you more about. Oh well, can you tell me what it's going to be? Uh, you know, so uh, I I can say this. I don't think I'm allowed, I don't think I'm clear until after the first of the year. But uh, if people did enough digging, they could probably find it. And uh, but it's an intersection on faith and politics and i think it's done in a way that we haven't seen in a while and it's really the goal of it is to try to help reset the church back into biblical values and just a a, a real um just anchor us once again back in the truth and so uh, i think that you're going to start hearing a lot more about that here this next year uh, but i'm excited to get that out the door Wow, that sounds absolutely amazing, uh, because I had been raised Italian Roman Catholic, and you know that you can't get any more Roman Catholic than an Italian. Um, <laughs> yes, that's true. My mom's maiden but, name yeah. was Corelli, for what that's worth. So, As <laughs> <laughs> um, a matter of fact, my mother, after a stroke, has moved in with me, so I've got my Italian mother, 88 years old, <laughs> on my Oh, hand. wow. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I did not lose faith. What I lost was, was faith in the Catholic Church because I saw so many things going on over the years, yeah. and I saw a left turn, and I ended up joining the Anglican faith, which stays pretty conservative. As a matter of fact, here in South Carolina, yep. we had a huge court battle. I'm sure you've heard about it, where the Episcopal yep. Church tried to destroy us, and they were going after specifically uh, my parish, which was established in 1712. Now, it survived mm. the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, and it just survived this last one. Uh, and so far, it looks like we've won. Because uh, what they wanted to do was close our doors, and the bishop that was leading this fight said, I will close the doors and sell it to a mosque. Is oh, how wow. bad the fight got. So, you know, I am wow. now Anglican, it's, you know, Roman Catholic, but I have never lost my faith. As a matter of fact, at yeah. the age of 13, I just became a Catholic nun until I found boys. <laughs> you know, I, my, my first it, book is called Good. Yeah, I was gonna say my first book is called Good God, and the subtitle there is, um, you know, it's basically the one that we want to believe in, who we're afraid to embrace. And you know, this this uh, I think so many people have gone through what I call post traumatic church disorder. They've been beat up by the church and beat up by religion, and you know, they want to love the Lord. They believe in God. They 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 know that He's out there. But they've been real discouraged by just the uh, um, uh, the institution of church, and and I really think there's a lot of hope for people when we start really working through Scripture and start seeing how good God is, and that's something that I try to do in Good God, it, and really just kind of reset that um, that that uh, that barometer that we have of what is God's character and nature like. What are the kind of things that He does? And I think if if God were to do everything that religion says He does, He would be arrested a long time ago. You know, but the fact of the matter is, Scripture shows us a God who's good. You know, he's not out there, you know, giving kids cancer and causing car accidents and these things. You know, we have a free will and life happens. But, you know, when we start understanding God's goodness, I think it really frees us up to be able to rethink what church looks like, 
rethink our experience. And it sounds like you certainly did that. And, and I think that's something a lot of people need. And that's really why I wrote that book. Well, you know, one of the things that, you know, I've said to listeners in the past, and I've had, you know, other co-hosts talk with me about this, and I'm not afraid to, to, to discuss my faith. I have absolutely no problem in that. And I'm not going to force it on you. I just want to let you know, you know, that I love you no matter what. But yeah. I, I was the receiving line coming out of church one day, and I looked down at my bishop's shoes, and I, I hugged him, and I said, thank you. And he, he saw me staring at his shoes. He goes, what's wrong with my shoes? And I said, they don't cost a lot of money. They're beat up. They're well used, which means that you visit your parishioners and you walk in the path of God. Mm-hmm. And he looks down. He's got one of these beat up old pair of deck shoes he must have had for like the last <laughs> 25 years. Yeah. And I said, you know, you can tell the reality of a pastor. Look down at their shoes. If they're wearing $700 <laughs> shoes, there's something right. wrong with that. But if he's wearing a pair of good old sturdy work shoes and he's there in that Sunday line after serving mass, then, you know, you got the right church. And he looked at that way. <laughs> but isn't there a lot of truth? Because so I many of them so. have their hand out, you know, the, the plate is more important. You know, the donation plate is more important than the word of God. And when you do that, yeah. then you've lost me and you've lost a lot of yeah, you know, people. I- could come to yeah i think certainly there's a lot of people who've had experiences like that and and there's been some real uh um you know i mean i've heard some real horror stories but you know i'm just so thankful the more i i'm around the church the more i'm in ministry i just keep finding more and more people that do love the lord that have not been corrupted by the system and and i think that there is just there's great news out there for the church today and i think even more than ever right now as we start seeing some of these government restrictions and and really things kind of come against christianity I think that the real church is really rising up across various denominations and people that love the Lord that are genuine in their faith. And that just want to see, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, just, just really the message of the gospel go forth. And so, uh, you know, I really try to focus on that and, 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 you know, keep my eyes on that as much as possible. Well, I have to laugh because my mother, my husband and I were watching uh, one of the recent Trump rallies. It was uh, women for Trump and faith-based leaders uh, doing this rally uh, for President Trump, and um, it was on the day the Electoral College was casting their votes. I, I think you know which rally I'm talking about. Yeah, and there yeah, was yeah. an evangelist, and he's ranting and raving at the crowd, and he's getting them stirred up, and he's bringing out the fire and holy water. And my husband and I are just sitting there and just enjoying it, lapping it up. And my mother, God bless her, she says, that's not how you talk about God. And she's going on and on and on. <laughs> so now my husband and my mother are fighting with each other. And I'm like, children behave. <laughs> children behave. I turned around to her and I said, Mom, God talks in many voices. Who is to say which one's the correct one? He talks in many voices through many different people. So it may not be the voice you hear, but it's the voice I hear. So who's yeah, to say I, I it's wrong? They- yeah, the the important thing I think in any situation like that is that it comes back to, you know, is it is it based on scripture? Is it based upon, you know, we have a guidebook. And so, you know, the really cool thing is that we have a litmus test to be able to discern, you know, when something is from God and when it's not. And if it lines up with scripture, if it lines up with that teaching, it might not be the style we're used to. It might be in a little bit different tone. It might be in a little bit different voice. But does it line up with the truth of the word? Is it walking in love? You know, is it walking in truth? 
and I think that those become really our litmus test along the way. And, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, obviously, you know, we all have preferences probably for denominations and things like that. But I'm just so thankful that that God is bigger than, you know, kind of our our individual mindsets. And and I think that, that you know, the Bible is really his gift to us to help guide us through that process and, and make sure that we keep uh, we keep that that uh, anchor in the truth of his word. Yeah, and then it should be anchored our faith also in prayer. And every, the moment you say the word prayer, people freak out. It's like, oh, my goodness. You know, I don't have prayers memorized. And, and whenever someone does that to me, I says, no, no, no. God hears you no matter what you're saying or thinking. Everything you say should be done as if it is a prayer. You know, just speak to him in common, everyday language, the same way you're talking to me. He's going to hear you. He's going to listen. And in one way or another, he's going to answer. And maybe by not doing something, that is his answer to you also. By telling you, you, maybe you just prayed for the wrong thing. I'm not going to pay attention to that one. So I'm letting you know you just did something wrong here. Now, even in that, there's an answer. And if sure. we see sure. God in that manner, hey, he's going to sit there and he's going to listen to you no matter what. Now, you can rant and rave. You can praise hallelujah whatever. He's going to listen. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a verse in Corinthians that says that um, that every promise in Christ is yes, and we speak the amen under the glory of God, and that always stuck out to me. You know that that we have these promises, and God's God's answer. If we're praying according to His Word, His answer is always yes, based upon the promises that He's given us. But that we speak, it says we speak the amen, and the word amen, you know, as you probably know, it means let it be so or let it happen to me. And, you know, literally this, this says that, you know, God's answer when it's according to his word is yes. You know, I, there's certain things if we don't have any maybe foundation in the word that we might not be sure of. And those are things that we can certainly discern yes or no or maybe in those types of situations. But we're, we're praying really according to his word. He answers yes. And then we claim that by saying amen in our life. Let it be so in my life today, Lord. And I think that that uh, just really brings about some really cool transformation and just answers to prayer. So those are some of the things I talk about in my book, Good God. And, and I think that if, if people are enjoying this topic, I think it's certainly uh, something that would really uh, minister to them and give them some hope uh, in the midst of some of the trying uh, circumstances that we all face. Well, you know, I've been, I've been blessed. I'm, I looked at, while you're saying you're going on your not quite 200th show coming up. And I said, gee, how many did I do? And I pulled up my episodes. I'm 24 shy of 1,000. <laughs> oh wow, that's amazing. That's a that's a huge milestone. You know, that's a lot of shows and and uh you know, yeah, the Lucas Miles show and the Church Boys are both only uh uh we do one time a week and so uh I took a little bit of a hiatus from the Lucas Miles show when I was writing my last book. Uh, it's it's uh you know, that's not easy, you know, doing doing a, a show as often as you do and uh it just creates some great content and and I'm sure your fan base uh, truly enjoys that. Well, I I've, I've been blessed and I've, I'm amazed. I mean, and I've had a great number of people like you that do not only just news, and, but as well as faith, uh, like Pastor Paula White Kane, um, Dr. Bruce mm-hmm. Hartman, who was just earlier. I've had some fantastic, fantastic people that are, are conservative in their politics, but also faithful, too. So, and I always have fun speaking to them about it because people are afraid. They figure, all right, you're yeah. doing a news politics show. Uh, I, I really should step away from mentioning faith. And no, 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 no. We want to hear it. We need to have it broadcast out there. Uh, it, it encourages everyone else out there to not be afraid. 
to not be afraid to express it. And I've gotten into the habit now where instead of saying, have a nice day, I say, have a blessed day. And you'd be amazed how many people smile when you say that. And when you say Merry Christmas and you hear people going, oh, it is so nice to hear people say Merry Christmas once again. We have been told by our society, by mainstream media, or as I call them, lamestream media, or by the Hollywood elites, no, 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 you can't, you can't discuss this. So when I have someone like you on, to me, it's a blessing. It's a joy. It makes my day wonderful. Well, hey, I appreciate that. It's been wonderful being on the program and, and uh, you know, just being able to talk about the film, The Penitent Thief, and, and uh, can't wait for your audience to see it on here December 22nd. And uh, just really, uh, it's, it's just always great to talk to, uh, uh, to hosts like yourself and just love the work that you're doing. And, and uh, you know, here's to uh, another thousand more episodes for you. And what's the website people can go to? So, yeah, if people want to find out more, they can search this just directly on iTunes or Amazon as just The Penitent Thief in order to pull up the title. They can also go to our Facebook page, uh, just The Penitent Thief, uh, uh, the movie, I believe it is. And then if they want to find out more about me or grab a copy of my book, Good God, they can head over to lucasmiles.org. That's uh, Lucas, L-U-C-A-S, Miles, M-I-L-E-S, to find out more. And they all have some announcements coming real soon on my new book that will hit here in the spring of 2021. Uh, and then we also got uh, all sorts of other resources. I'm just finishing up a uh, verse-by-verse commentary through the Book of Romans uh, that will have uh, uh, audio and video available for soon. And so a lot of resources for, uh, for you know, pastors and lay people alike that are looking to enrich their faith. And if you enjoy, if you enjoy media and Hollywood and also you're a Christian and you enjoy, you know, talking about your faith, uh, typically, uh, you know, you found the right place and love to invite people over to take a look. Well, I might get you in contact with a friend of mine. His name is Dan Perkins, and he comes out with these little iPods he gives to veterans. It's called Songs and Stories for Soldiers. It helps them that have uh, traumatic brain injury, PTSD, or other uh, injuries from um, wartime, and it helps them you know, calm down and live a healthier, happier life. I may hook him up with you and see if you get some of your stuff over to him. Always love another connection. That'd be great. All right. Well, Lucas Miles, God bless you for the hard work you do. That film is absolutely fantastic, The Penitent Thief, coming out December 22nd. I'm going to tell people to to download it and to share it with friends and family for Christmas. Thank you so much. Merry Christmas, and thanks for having me on. All right. God bless. Check it out. Miles. Right. Uh, Lucas Miles. Get the name right, Ed. Okay, Lucas Miles. Oh, man. Um, Our next guest is not going to call in for the next 15 minutes, but uh, I wanted to go back to talk about some of the other stuff we have here. But that was a great interview, wasn't it, Yanni? Oh, i got to unmute you again. See, you got to tell me when the light's not on. (laughs) Anyway, I think my husband's going to... We're going to have to watch that because you watched it last night, right? Yeah, I watched it all last night. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was able to get a, the pre-copy, uh, pre pre-release copy. So yeah, we'll we'll watch it later on. Yeah, okay. it is it is great, and um, is it is it really brings you back yeah, to what really, was going on at that time and helps you understand, you know, why were these two hung on either side? Why was Christ crucified at that moment? What was going on politically, religiously? How did they end up at that point at that time? 
it really piqued my interest listening to him. <clears throat> Pardon me about my voice. I kind of lost it. Mm. Well, anyway, I was trying to talk about this hilarious, you know, San Francisco Board of Supervisors oh, voting 10 to 1 to ban smoking in many private homes unless it's pot. <laughs> knock, knock, it's the pot police at the door. <laughs> anyway, the new ordinance makes it illegal to smoke tobacco in an apartment building of three or more units, which covers many city residents. The ban, however, makes an explicit exception for smoking medical marijuana. Now, now think about this. The same carcinogens that are in a cigarette are in pot. So if you're going to be smoking pot, you're going to be releasing carcinogens into the atmosphere. So if you're concerned about getting lung cancer from someone nearby smoking a cigarette in your apartment building, then why aren't you worried about getting lung cancer from someone smoking a bowl of pot? And they're more likely to smoke more pot than they are cigarettes. So just, just, just tell me where the logic to this is. Did someone tell me that? Take another toke of that magic smoke. Marijuana <laughs> is good for you. One toke over the line, sweet Jesus. One toke over the line. <laughs> Well, starting this in January, uh, San Francisco, this is, this is a tweet someone put out, uh, Norman Lee, after uh, starting this in January, I'm happy to report at SFDOS passed my smoke-free multi-unit housing legislation tonight with a cannabis exception. Secondhand smoke causes harm and everyone should have clean air to breathe where they live. Thanks to my colleagues for their support. Well, this guy had to be stoned when he wrote this. <laughs> if you want a smoke-free environment, then don't smoke pot. <laughs> Come on, guys. What's your name? <laughs> Doi. Three letters, huh? That's what it be. <laughs> Ten seconds, Bob. What's your name? Starts with a B, has an O in the middle, and ends with a B. What's your name, Bob? <laughs> One joke over the line, dude. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, people who, who smoke in their home but not smoke marijuana will face a $1,000 fine, ABC Hi. News reports. Other California cities and counties have a similar smoking but not marijuana ban. (laughs) It's spreading. It's contagious, guys. Stupidity is now contagious. I'm dying here. I got tears coming out of my eyes. Only in California, dudes. Only in California. Isn't that Pelosi's deal? <laughs> well, you know, you got to consider Gavin Newsom's Pelosi's nephew. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh man, I'm dying here, folks. I really am. Uh, and just let's let's add on to you. Just can't make this crap up, guys. Uh, this is from U.S. A wire. 
All right. A Seattle politician who defunded the police, catch this, called 911 to report a crime she is effectively legalizing. Again, guys, you cannot, cannot, you cannot make this up. Okay. Seattle, of course, Seattle, Washington, Seattle City Councilwoman Lisa Herbold, who is an activist to defund the police, ironically called 911 on Friday to report a crime she effectively is trying to legalize. A man reportedly threw a rock through her living room window. The councilwoman said she was on the west side of the living room near the kitchen when she heard a loud noise that sounded like a gunshot and dove kitchen for cover. Oh, my goodness. According to a redacted police report. Now, under her proposed new legislation, the suspect would probably not be prosecuted. A neighbor told police that a person who is unathletic and a bad runner was seen. (laughs) So not only does he throw a rock through this woman's window, he's unathletic and a bad runner. So he can't even flee the scene. Uh, The witness said he would recognize the suspect if he saw him again. Okay. Well, guess what? Even if they saw him again, they ain't going to arrest him. Herbold told the police that her staff had received anonymous phone threats recently, but nothing in particular that links the threat to today's incident. Um, The Seattle City Council is considering a new criminal code regulation, now catch this, that would make the city the first municipality in the U.S. to excuse misdemeanor crimes if they can be linked to poverty, addiction, or mental health disorders. All right. Under the proposed legislation by Herbold, the perp could avoid criminal charges if he is caught. The charges against most misdemeanor suspects could be dismissed if they showed symptoms of mental illness. Well, if you're still living in Seattle, that's mental illness to me. Sorry, guys. If you still live in Seattle and listening, no offense, I hope. Done in jest. Just joking. Just joking. (laughs) I'll get hate mail now. If they have mental illness or addiction, or if they can prove the crime provided for a need to survive, providing a so-called poverty defense. So they're going to legalize misdemeanors, basically. So here she is. She's saying um, this guy has to be mentally ill because if he's not athletic and he hasn't the ability to safely flee the scene of a crime that he just committed, that's a little bit of a mental illness, right? <laughs> I just, I, 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 some of this stuff you just you really, really can't make up. I mean, unbelievable. Anyway, um, I believe it was Duck who asked about earlier, or maybe it was Sasquatch who was asking about, you know, New Year's resolutions. Well, this will be, I think, my sixth or seventh year making the same resolution that I, I try to keep. I really do honestly try to keep that every day I piss off one liberal. <laughs> That's my continuous New Year's resolution. You got one, Yanni? No, I don't. No? Every day just do one thing to piss me off? <laughs> no. But it works on its own. We're just waiting for um, our guy from Heritage Foundation to call, and he should be calling in the next five minutes or so. Anyway, um, 
What? Um, I did it right. I read um, the first book. I, I couldn't put it down. I wrote the Walking uh, with Jesus. Okay. That's the latest one. Um, the one that by Dr. Hartman, yeah. which is um, let me get the name correctly. Spend a year with Jesus: right. An inspirational journey of finding I, Jesus I, in I faith. Read that one. wanted to tell him that I started reading um, the other one, the corporate one, um, Jesus and Company. Jesus and Company. That one I couldn't get into. And now I'm halfway through on his, his faith. Your faith has healed you. hard to sit down, but last night I had a headache and I couldn't read. I couldn't sleep, but I couldn't read because I had a headache. Mm. Yeah, he's going to come out with a new, a new book next year. Well, it's it's been um, the last couple of well, good, not couple of months. I should say the last six, seven months have been really hard on our family here. So uh, just to remind people, we will not be live for the next two Fridays. Next two Fridays is Christmas Day and New Year's Day. Uh, We're going to just take a mini vacation here and then vamp back up uh, the first Friday of uh, January, January 8th. Actually, the second Friday of January, January 8th. We will be ramping back up again the show. Hopefully, we'll have our batteries recharged and be able to go into the new year full force. And hopefully, by Friday the 8th, January 8th, we'll know who the actual president-elect is. And if anyone listening out there, uh, say a prayer for our President Donald Trump and say a prayer for our nation. And let's, 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 uh, let's hope that if we all pull together, it'll come out. Yeah. And um, they are looking for volunteers to go down to Georgia to knock on doors to help uh, bring people to polling places. Uh, The Democrats are ramping up to do what they can again to influence the election as best they can. They know the eyes of the nation will be watching them. So we've got to make sure we also get our people down there. Uh, So if you're listening in and you're able to travel to Georgia or even call the Georgia GOP and see if you can make phone calls for them from the seat of your own home. There's a lot of things that you can do on the computer to uh, make phone calls at free of cost to you. Uh, Just uh, if you can find a way, even if you just make a donation to the funds out there to help the candidates in Georgia. And uh, we've got our final victim in on the line. Uh, He was supposed to be with us last week, but I guess one American news was more important than little old me. So we'll forgive him anyway, but welcome aboard to Jonathan Butcher of the Heritage Foundation. Good afternoon, Jonathan. How are you doing? Thank you for having me, and I'm so sorry about the mix-up last week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've been having a lot of fun with the show uh, today, and it just – 
it's it's our final show before the new year because I'm taking off the next two Fridays because of the holidays. Uh, so I'm just I'm I'm just going winging it all the way through. Um, you're with the found the, the the Teeth and Backwards Heritage Foundation, and you've got a great article out entitled "Critical Race Theory: The New Intolerance and Its Grip on America." And that's something that we were talking with several of our guests earlier today uh, about this critical race theory, uh, race baiting, race uh, political political race identity wars. Uh, it is it is to a peak I have never in my entire life thought I would ever see, and it's getting worse day by day. Well, that's right, and the reason that the Heritage Foundation wanted to look at the issue in in the way that we have done it is because, you know, at at Heritage, we are always trying to look for solutions. We very quickly want to move to a point where we can give people something that they can do, something that they can use to um, improve, you know, their lives, right? And and something that they can do to uh, be actively engaged in the world around them. And whether it's a school or whether it's a civic um, organization or a community group or or what have you. Um, But, as we were uh, discussing this particular topic, uh, I think what we what we arrived at was that it's, it is important for us at this moment in time to explain to uh, a- any audience, really, uh, what critical race theory is, where it comes from, and what the logical outcomes are when you follow this worldview. And, uh, and so that's what we did. That's what we put together. No, I, I have a personal question to ask you because as you're you're speaking, I'm I'm rereading your bio, and I forgot about this, and I thank God I had underlined it. Um, you were the director of accountability for the South Carolina Public Charter School District. Was that under when Barbara Feldman was the uh, superintendent of schools here in South Carolina? So that's a great question. I I don't believe so. So I was doing that from 2000. Um, let's see, 2009 to 2011. And I know, right. um, so I, w- I would have to go back and look honestly to, um, to see, I know, I remember who, I remember who the superintendents were of course of, of my office and uh, Wayne Brazel uh, in particular, uh, I know has such a great reputation around South Carolina, He's a long time superintendent of um, I think in Lexington and um, just uh, such a gentleman. So it was a pleasure to work for him. Yeah, because 2009, uh, we formed the Tea Party here in Beaufort, uh, and Mark Sanford was supposed to be our first speaker, and that's when he took a walkabout down in South South America. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> I do remember that. <laughs> matter of fact, his brother goes to our church. Uh, no, because I, I was speaking with Barbara Feldman just a couple of days ago. On Monday, actually, we had our county GOP meeting. And uh, she's a great fan of this show, Barbara. She's a a sweet lady, a friend of mine. So I was just curious if if you knew her or not. Oh, excellent. I I believe that we have met on at least one occasion. Um, But it's been some time because after I uh, served there with the the public charter school district, I moved back to Arizona or I moved to Arizona uh, to, uh, to work with Goldwater and then um, have since uh, moved back to the state, although my headquarters now, of course, at Heritage are in D.C. So um, I, have, I haven't had as much you know, interaction with uh, uh, what's been happening here locally anyway with, uh, with schools. 
Well, if you end, end up heading down here to South Carolina, let me know. <laughs> we happen to have a couple. Oh, of thank you. I, I will. No, I'd be glad to. Yeah. I actually I I've had the great op- opportunity to testify a couple of times since I've been back in the state, and I've testified um, uh, on some of the um, school choice options that have come up in recent years, and and I believe. Um, uh, a free speech on campus proposal as well. So I've, uh, I've I've talked with lawmakers about some of the priority issues that that I work on. So, oh, awesome, awesome. You know, I'm a huge proponent of um, school choice, especially of the uh, the new charter schools that we have popping up left and right. And the one thing I love about these is that they require a family member to become actively involved in school, so many hours a month. So that family member, that parent or sibling or aunt, uncle, they get to see what the school is doing and they get to observe and actively be a participant, which actually helps lower the cost of teaching per child. I I just love that, that model. Well, and it gets the community involved in that local school and it makes it their own. Um, I think that what charter schools have brought is the opportunity for um, teachers and community members to think about um, what their what the what the process of education is a little differently, and I think they're able to create something unique for students. Um, and frankly, I mean, shoot, we can g- go straight to the the results and the outcomes. I mean, charter schools today nationwide are serving a higher percentage of minority students, a higher percentage of low-income students than traditional schools are. Uh, they are meeting a need. Um, they are urgent for every state, um, and South Carolina is is no exception. And so I, I think that what what charter schools are bringing to the education landscape is, is very important. It's very important. Well, I also see a growing number of faith-based schools, too, especially here in South Carolina. And in particular, my church just a handful of years ago started it, and they started with uh, kindergarten through third grade. And all of a sudden, it took off like a flash. Money was being donated. We had uh, one person... Uh, one local resident turns around and goes, well, I'll donate X amount of money if the church can match that. And it was something like, I think it was like $5 million. It seemed impossible that we were going to even come match it. It gave us six months to do it. Do you know our parish was able to match those funds? So that money went pouring into tuitions to local kids wanting to come to the school and Last year, we graduated our first class going to college. Oh, congratulations. What a wonderful story. That's terrific. A handful of years. And we didn't think there was that much money within the parish, but people knocked on their neighbor's doors, and the neighbors knocked on neighbor's doors, and they reached out to friends, families outside of the state, and money just came pouring in. and Unbelievable. But there is a hunger for good education for our kids outside of the public school system. Well, you're absolutely right. And I think what private schools and charter schools are able to do is to to design a curriculum that more closely matches the values of what the parents who are sending their children there are looking for. And obviously for generations, right, that is what private schools, independent schools have brought 
to the educational world. That's what um, uh, parents want, right? I mean, when they go and look for a private school, it's going to come at a cost, certainly. And uh, so they are going to take that decision very seriously. And I, I know that uh, surveys have shown that when parents are looking for private schools, that they, um, a great many of them, a significant percent uh, percentage will be looking for what is being taught and, and what the values and what the idea of character formation is at those schools. And then this is where critical race theory comes into play. It has been seeping into our school systems and into our society since the before the 1950s. But I think it started to come to head during the 1950s when we saw the migration uh, into our uh, prison systems of Muslims going in there to minister and then Mosques were starting to open up in the 1950s here in the United States. And then we saw it morph into Black Panther power. And then we have now uh, the 1619 Project. It, it, it is a division in our nation where there need not be. And it's actually upending our moral society. And the folks that I have talked with about this who, um, who work in these areas and, and work with schools and work with communities about um, uplifting people and creating opportunities, um, they, they ask a very good question and they say, what is the ultimate aim of those that espouse critical race theory? What are they after? Because they, the discussion and, and what they espoused always leads back to victimization and creating social or, or financial benefits for people in certain victimized groups. And uh, if that's the ultimate aim, I mean, that's not what, it's not what our nation was built on, right? It's not, what, it's not what we want for our children. It's, that's not the idea of individual value and of personal liberty that, um, that our nation was founded on. Uh, you, we, we should remember, too, that critical race theory is the child of critical legal theory, which came out of just critical theory. And as the name suggests, critical theory is different than, I suppose, what, what we have all, always called traditional theory, where you accept the idea that there is objective truth, right, that there is a reality, and that that reality can be found, and that ideas like reason and pursuing the truth through science and things like that uh, is uh, the best way to arrive at truth. And critical theory and all of the critical um, offshoots of that idea, they take a different view and they say you need to be you need to critically um, uh, look at uh, the world around you and explain it using your own narrative and your own experience, and that is worth more than the objective truth and the facts around you. All of that sounds pretty academic, but what it really boils down to is that with critical race theory, those who are its adherents will say the world must be viewed through the lens of race. Your experience matters more than whatever the um, objective truth may be. And perhaps most importantly, the uh, ideas at the core of this came out of Marxist thought and uh, Marxist teachings that sort of morphed over the years and um, sort of transitioned into this idea that the world is all about systems of power, that uh, everyone is either a victim or has been victimized uh, or is a victimizer, excuse me. And um, the whole point of critical theory is to disrupt the systems of power so that those who have been marginalized um, are able to uh, have greater um, 
authority and freedoms than those who were not marginalized. But instead, all they end up is with tyranny, and then everyone becomes victimized to tyranny. Well, that's right, and that's why there are people on the right and the left who are concerned about this issue, uh, because critical race theory and critical theorists in general, um, they they don't really seem to mind which side of the aisle you say you are on. All that matters is your level of victimization, and this actually touches on one of the concepts that's at the at the center of critical race theory, called intersectionality. And the idea of intersectionality is that you have um, multiple groups that you are a part of, and you just have to pick which ones you're aligned with, and that will then amplify your uh, victimhood and allow you to speak about your victimization with more authority than others around you. So to kind of put, um, put some, um, uh, a finer point on that, so if you are uh, a female, a minority, and of a specific gender that, or you know, gender identification that you choose, right? So all of those things then, you know, you can combine all of those things in intersectionality, and that will amplify your position to speak on, you know, the, the world around you. And, and again, criticize what you see as systems of power when in reality it's the constitutional republic on which – you know which, which our nation um, uh, is is built on. You know, I, I always get a kick when I hear someone say, "You have no idea what it's like," and I, I sit back and I'm thinking to myself, "Well, you haven't walked in my shoes, so you have no idea what this is like." We we can play this game all day, but if we walk past, all right, this is the situation we're in at this moment. What can we do about it to make it better for both of us? But we don't hear that from them. It has to be, I'm the victim, so therefore, you owe me. And that's not the way we work as Americans. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think that we've lost sense of this idea that there is a commonality of us as Americans and that uh, this, you know, we, we may be a, a, a melting pot. We may be people that, that can trace our backgrounds to different places. Um, but as Americans, um, we have uh, things that we have a past that unites us. It's a past that's not perfect, right? But no nation has a, a perfect past. In fact, um, uh, many of them have, have, uh, dissolved or fallen away entirely, right? As, especially as you go back to Rome and Greece and things like that. I mean, they, um, they, they couldn't last. And, and we have something here uh, that we are trying to make last, um, even despite, um, you know, what happened in slavery. I mean, we, sh- we should be prepared to have a real conversation about what, uh, what the causes of slavery were, what the causes of the end of slavery were, uh, the problems with Jim Crow and that era, and even what happened leading up to the civil rights movement and coming out of the civil rights movement. I mean, we, we need to have an honest conversation about those things. The difficulty is when critical race theory adherents um, take things um, like the 1619 Project and try to use that as their vehicle, what they are doing is they are not taking the truth. They are taking a narrative and elevating it above the truth. And in the case of the 1619 Project, they actually got many of the facts wrong. And that then <laughs> su- suddenly creates the division, right? That th- there, there we find ourselves in a place where we can't actually have a, a hard conversation about what the truth is and, and what we need to do about it. 
Well, that's the problem. They use disinformation and they repeat it often enough to make everyone else believe it to be the truth. And that's not how it is. It's not subjective. It's object. You, you, you have to deal with real facts, real truth, not your perception of what it is or should be. You know, it, that's the problem. We're getting away from truth and facts and we're making them flexible, bendable, changeable. No, a fact is a fact. A truth is a truth. It's, it's no other way to bend it, twist it, or whatever you want to do to it. But they're turning it into a pretzel. And they come up with something like the 1619. 95% of it is a farce. And then when they turn around on their website and openly say they want to see the destruction of the family, they want to see the destruction of the person who wants to go out and work for a living. How dare you be ambitious? That's a bad thing. They are upending the moral fabric of our society. And I'm glad someone like you and the Heritage Foundation is shouting from the rooftop about it and doing something about it. Well, and we're trying to. I, I think that the, you know, the 1619 Project is certainly a concern, especially because it's attracted so much attention. You know, it came from the New York Times. It's, it's a paper that everyone knows. Uh, but there are other things that are, are actually affecting uh, more children. There's, a, uh, there's been a movement in California for well over a year now to create an ethnic studies requirement for K-12 students. And the text of that model curriculum for that ethnic studies program is full of the ideas from critical race theory. In fact, they have an entire chapter uh, or an entire section on intersectionality. Uh, it it's, has all of the ideas of systems of power, of white privilege, of decolonizing curriculum, of decolonizing ideas and, and things like that. Decolonization, of, of course, is the concept that um, our, um, uh, our uh, culture has been uh, set up by um, uh, only by white people and only for white people, and so uh, everything that was has was done must be decolonized. Uh, and they they apply that to written work, they apply that to systems and, and everything. So yeah, it's it gotten so out of hand. You know, they couldn't do it through Common Core. So now they're trying through that history book that had more pages on Islam on it rather than any other religion and having kids recite the Shahada. They're finding any and every way in which to get into our education system and upend it and create a bunch of propaganda-raised brats, which is what we're seeing with the Antifa movement and with the Occupy movement. You know, And they had, are not equipped to handle the rest of society. And, and then it's a shameful thing. And we're losing generations of kids to this brainwashing. Well, and just quickly, that's kind of what led me down this path to look more into critical race theory uh, was my work on free speech on college campuses. And I know, I'm sure many of those listening have heard or read the headlines about what's happened at you know, California Berkeley a couple of years ago and the big, um, you know, they had a, a huge riot there in February of 2017, I believe it was. And then that was followed by several others. Uh, I, I mean, the uh, the president of Duke was shouted off the stage at one point by some of the students. Uh, there was a big uh, campus takeover at a place called uh, Evergreen State College up in uh, Washington State. It's, it's happened a lot, especially in the past, you know, five to 10 years. But what you have to recognize is that when you listen to the students on the YouTube videos of shoutdowns of 
speakers and things like that. And when you read these open letters of grievance that come from students at these colleges, you can find one from Princeton just from this past summer. Uh, there's one at Sarah Lawrence College from uh, last year. Look at the language that they use, and it's straight from the lexicon of critical race theory. They use words like microaggression, which is, again, a critical race theory concept. They use everything from safe spaces to decolonization to intersectionality. I mean, they're, they're saying that their, their colleges, of which they pay anywhere from – or somebody pays anywhere from twenty to $60,000 a year to attend and may have a climbing wall in the student center – they say that it's not a safe space for them. In fact, that's what they said at Yale uh, in 2015 when a professor there um, uh, said that you know, students were taking this whole Halloween costume issue too seriously. And students protested and confronted the, pro the professor that wrote that and, and said that Yale wasn't a safe place for them. And it's, it's, uh, so, so once, once you recognize that students are just repeating, they didn't just come up with this. I mean, they're repeating what, they're, what they've been taught and what they've been read. Um, and then, you know, that's, that's why I think it's so important to trace this back to K-12 schools, to trace this back to the intellectual movement coming out of the, um, uh, out of the uh, 19th century into the 20th century, into the 20th century, really, um, that uh, gave, gave birth to all of these things. And uh, it, it goes back again. There, there are Marxist roots. There are roots in uh, the more violent side of um, uh, the civil rights era and, and all of that. And today it's, uh, it's a part of the cancel culture that we see around us. Uh, it is a shame. I mean, they're simply regurgitating what they're being fed. And I, I, for some reason, I don't know why the book Jonathan Siegel uh, flew through my mind. Anyway, um, but what we need to do is get parents involved in the schools. And I have to start by finding out who their representative is on the school board, becoming involved in what the school board is doing, finding out what books are in the schools. If they contact the school board or the school district itself, they are able to sit down and look at these textbooks that are being handed to the kids. Now, I'm seeing that some of the schools, like in California, are not sending those books home because they don't want the parents to know what's there. But the parents are going to have to fight the system and find out what is being taught, who is teaching it, and how to get the curriculum down to something more normal and classical. Well, and there are things, there are definitely solutions for policymakers and then solutions for families. I think on the side of policymakers, uh, there, well, what we really need is for more transparency around public school curriculum. Uh, this material really, it should be available for taxpayers and parents to access. Uh, it, uh, many states do have provisions that allow families to see what the public school instructional materials are, but sometimes there are rules around that, like you have to go to the district office during a certain hours and things, things like that. So it, it needs to be open, be available on the website, and that's not impossible. In fact, going back to our discussion about charter schools, there are charter schools that do this already, and they post their entire curriculum uh, on their website so that parents can see uh, what's being taught. So I think transparency is a big first step. I think the second thing is uh, we do need to create, um, and when I say we, I mean I think those who understand the dangers of, of critical theory need to create new content, and that's being done now 
by groups like the 1776 Unites Project, which is led by Robert Woodson. Uh, Ian Rowe, a charter school leader, is uh, a major uh, leading voice in that project. Uh, they are creating curricular materials to teach about um, how former slaves overcame their circumstances uh, cr and created their own opportunities um, and became successful. Uh, and so it's, it's not a story of victimization. It's a story of overcoming obstacles and, and being uplifted and uplifting yourself. Um, Hillsdale College uh, has a number of resources that schools can use, um, as well as the Ashbrook Center, the Bill of Rights Institute. So, you know, there are options out there today, and I think um, publicizing those, I think talking about the problems in existing materials is important, and, uh, and school leaders really should be looking for this, this kind of material. Yeah. Well, we always say that all politics starts local, and I say get involved. Know who you're voting for when you vote for dog catcher, school superintendent, your council member. You know, you start all the way down there because eventually as they climb the political ladder, they will then become your state rep, your state senator, your U.S. senator, your U.S. rep. we got to know who is running for office and follow their pathway also. We had to go through three school superintendents here in my county before we finally got one worth his salt. And we actively had to work to remove the previous superintendents to get someone in that was halfway decent. And now we got ourselves a gem. But you know, you got to know what your education system is doing. And the fact that you were working so hard at uh, Heritage Foundation to get the word out there, to tell people about what's going on with critical theory, uh, what's going on with the 1619 Project, and all the other crap they're throwing at us is so, so important. Well, thank you. We're trying our best. I mean, we've we have resources up there now that um, does it dissects the 1619 project's curriculum because the, that set of essays also has a school curriculum that goes with it. Uh, we've had some experts look at that material and talk about what is in there. Um, and we, you know, we of course have the paper that Mike Gonzalez, my colleague, and I wrote on critical race theory and, and talking about uh, how it shows up in the world around us. Uh, and that's and that's important too. I think people need to recognize that when people these days, when they say the word social justice and equity, if they are saying certain other words too, like uh, intersectionality and decolonization, they they don't they don't mean the same thing. No, run for the hills, guys. Uh, anyway, a matter of fact, Robert Woodson, he's the one that wrote the 1620 book, isn't he? So uh, I know that he has a book that he's written recently. There's a gentleman from uh, the National Association of Scholars named Peter Wood who has written something on that oh, as all right, well. Peter Wood. All right, that's who I was thinking of. The name had Wood in it because yeah, we had him on recently also. That book is excellent, an excellent read. And it really helps break down what's wrong with the 1619 Project. And it's not just him. It's a collection of other authors and essayists and scholars that you know just – say this is just blatantly wrong this is what leaves the facts and this is the truth well and, and robert woodson's website i mean their 1776 unite site has a whole collection of essays and responses on specifically on the 1619 project uh, john mcwarder has written for them uh, ian rowe again um and a number of others and and they're all 
they're all very good. I mean, I, I think the, the perspective that they take is that uh, we should be creating opportunities for everyone, regardless of your ethnicity, color of your skin. Uh, the, the goal here has to be to uh, create better opportunities for the next generation than what we had. And victimization is not going to do that. No. Jonathan, people can find you at heritage.org and read your articles up there, including this latest one you have, Critical Race Theory, The New Intolerance and Its Grip on America. God bless you for the hard work. And if I don't have a chance to speak with you, have a very blessed and Merry Christmas, sir. Thank you, and Merry Christmas to you. All right. Take care. All right. Check it out. Heritage.org. Jonathan Butcher. Um, That's all we got for the show. We're down to our last two and a half minutes. Uh, As I said, we will return live January 8th. We are going to take two weeks off. So I want everyone out there to have a very safe, very healthy, very blessed Christmas and a very happy new year. I will leave you with Gary Pecorella. Safe. Uh, well, you better say, say it real quick because I'm about ready to play the song. Okay. Well, I, I wish you all our loyal visitors on our show a very Merry Christmas and keep Christ in Christmas and bless you all. Okay. Gary Pecorella, Save America. I say good night and God bless. Love and love.